0: Good morning, welcome to Wake Up Carolina, Tuesday morning, August 30th, 843-661-0937. It feels a little bit different this year than it normally does. The reason it feels different this year, this isn't the first year, but there was a there was a period of time that Darlington was a week-long ordeal. Kerry said yesterday, Kerry Thorpe was with us, president of Darlington Raceway, and Kerry said, you know, the uh, the campers will be, the motorhomes will begin making their way in on Tuesday, But there was a a, a period of time, Rev. Good morning, sir. How are you? Hey, good morning. No Braves game last night. Nope. No Mets game last night. Nothing to keep up with. The Braves and Mets both are on the West Coast, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, The Braves are playing the Rockies. Um, That's not the West Coast, but that's out West.
1: I think they're at home for the next two games, and then they go out West. The Braves are? Yeah, I think it's Miami.
0: Okay. I'll double-check that. I thought it was Colorado. I thought they left – did they play left on St. Louis and went out to Colorado. Maybe not. Maybe they come home for a couple of games and then go out on a um on a road trip. But the uh the Mets are playing the Dodgers. Best team in all of baseball. The Dodgers have you looking it up? I'm looking
1: it up. Uh yeah, the uh looks like the Rockies come into
0: Atlanta. So the Rockies travel to Atlanta and then the Braves well anyway, the, the Braves have a chance to make up a couple of games. Um in Miami, in Atlanta, and then they go to Oakland. Okay, so then they go out west. Uh, so the Mets are making their trip out west now. The Braves will follow suit a week or so um, later. Here's the interesting part of this. Um, the Mets are a good team playing a really good team. Well, let's say this. The Mets are a really good team playing a almost great team. The Dodgers today are on track to win 113 games. Their run differential, which is kind of the measurement of how good you really are. Their run differential is fourth best in the history of Major League Baseball. That's pretty crazy. Mm. I mean, they don't just win. They win easily. They win handily. There's been a lot of baseball teams come and go in the course of the history of Major League Baseball. The Dodgers are the fourth best team ever in the history of Major League Baseball when it comes to... um, I mean, they don't win two to one very often. They win eight to four. You know, they win nine to two. They win 11 to one. I mean, they, they don't just beat people. They beat the crap out of them uh, when they beat them. I saw that stat last night because I was keeping up with the Mets, you know, making their way out to the um, to play the Dodgers. And I was like, how have the Dodgers not won but won world championship in this run? I mean, it's pretty mm-hmm. obvious the Dodgers are loaded for bear. and um, And if they don't win it this year, they'll begin to resemble the Braves. Of the '90s, you know, where they had that run. But I mean, there's no oh, yeah. doubt about it. There's no doubt the Dodgers are the best team in baseball, yeah, and they've stacked the deck. Sure. I mean, I mean with the well, I mean, great they've, players. They, and... They've got a big budget, a big salary, and excuse me, a big television market, and, and you know, an active ownership. And yeah, I mean, they, they're a um, they're a, they're a team that goes out against whatever it is they need. Uh, reminiscent of the Braves and Yankees when Steinbrenner and Ted Turner were the owners of those two teams. Um, but the fourth best run differential ever. I mean, the 113 games is pretty crazy. But they're baseball teams that have won 113 games. To win 113 games and have the fourth-best all-time record in run differential, I mean, that's one of the all-time great baseball teams ever. And um, we hope they play well for the next three days because the Mets will be uh, paying them a visit. Uh, you got to believe if you're a Mets fan, I don't want to say this, but if you're a Mets fan, don't get swept. You know, when you play the really, really good teams on the road, W- losing two or three at the end of the world um you only lost a game you know to the overall record so we ha- but i want to go back to darlington because here's mm-hmm. what here's what bothers me not concern me because i don't have any vested interest in this but for most of my younger life the race at Darlington wasn't a fair i mean it was an ordeal uh we had um, recently we had the car hauler parade but i mean there were a day's Uh, In years gone by, we had beauty pageants. I mean, you can't do that any longer, I don't think. That's probably sexist or or chauvinistic. But we had a Miss Southern 500. We had a Southern 500 golf tournament, you know, that um, Florence and Darlington of the PD got really excited about, motivated by, very involved in. Um, And now it seems that these teams, and they're calling it cost savings measures, um, they show up sometime Friday. You know, there's a motorhome park for these drivers. The majority live in Charlotte anyway, so I guess they drive. Some probably fly in. But you just don't see the drivers out and about. You don't see the cars out and about very often. Uh, we don't have the hauler parade this year. Um, they they argued about scheduling conflict. Mm-hmm. The, the reason is they're not here but for a day or two. I mean, They used to qualify. Check this out now. Used to have a beauty pageant. Used to have a golf tournament. Uh, round one qualifying one through 20 were set on Thursday. The second half of the field were set on Friday. And then you had practicing, you had racing on Saturday and racing on Sunday. Um, you still got racing on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but the cup, you know, the cup series, um, qualifies on Saturday, excuse me. Yeah. Qualifies on Saturday, races on Sunday, and they're out of here. So it's almost like, yeah, it's in town, but it's not as visibly integrated into, into the community as it um historically yeah, has right. been you're right now i do remember you would run into the drivers
1: at restaurants and their teams and they'd uh, i mean it would be a thing all it was an affair long.
0: man i mean it was a week-long affair um and then we lose the golf tournament i mean obviously you lose the beauty page because we can't have things like that any longer men gawking at women uh do it anyway just started calling it a beauty page <laughs> um and then and then you know the the drivers have these multi-million dollar motorhomes they've got these um this little private enclave that they collectively and i get it i mean they're not paid to get you know they're they're not paid to ramble about with the normal people they're paid to drive a race car they come and drive a race car and go home i just think that um it's another example of nascar losing touch with what made it great i mean the um the connection the fans had with the drivers um was one of the i don't know the different parts of that sport as opposed to some of the um some of the other sports, but Kerry was talking about their in and out of here. I just like the old days better. I like when we had a round of qualifying on Thursday. There was always something going on at the track. And if you were a race fan from the PD, it didn't get any better than that. It culminated, obviously, with the old Southern 500, which is now, I think, the cookout Southern 500, corporate sponsorships when carry uh, the day. Anyway, I can't do anything about it. It's still the best weekend in all of the world. I mean, you've got True. the um, the beginning of college football season. Unless you're a Nebraska fan who went to Dublin, Ireland, that sucks. Uh, lost to Northwestern. At um, you know, <laughs> the, thinking about you know the um, the brand that was Nebraska, not not is Nebraska, but it was Nebraska. Now something odd this year, a little bit different than normal. Um, Clemson plays, if I'm not mistaken, help me here. Clemson plays Labor Day night in That's the right. Chick fil A Kickoff Classic in Atlanta. Uh, plays Georgia Tech. They're 22-and-a-half-point favorites against Georgia Tech. That speaks to how good Clemson is and how not-so-good Georgia Tech is. But normally on Labor Day weekend, you've got the Gamecocks and Tigers playing Saturday, sometime at the same time, uh, very often not at the same time. But this year, they're playing on different dates. The Gamecocks play at 7.30 Saturday night. Uh, Clemson plays at, what's, 8 o'clock Monday night. So if you're a Tiger fan, I would imagine – uh, you're making a long weekend, even a longer weekend, by maybe taking a Monday off going down to, um, is it the uh, Mercedes-Benz Arena or the so. Mercedes-Benz Dome um, Stadium? That uh, Yeah, it's uh, traditionally been, I thought it always been an ACC-SCC matchup. But this year, it must be a, um, maybe it's not the Chick-fil-A Classic. You know, I'm not a Clemson fan. Don't keep up with their program quite as closely as I do. The Gamecocks, I do know they're playing in Atlanta if i'm not mistaken in atlanta against um against georgia tech on monday night 843 we'll 66109 you
1: know is our number so, some of the things going around race week have been affected by covid i mean that's why we haven't had the car hauler parade for a couple of years and i know this year they said uh both races this year there was no car car hauler parade because of scheduling and such but well, it, was, I, it was consistent until covid uh, but they've added other events i mean there's an event on wednesday where people are invited to come to the track i think there's a there's a track laps for charity event going on they have the braves world series trophy will be there wednesday afternoon uh so so they're, they're i guess they're slowly building things back up uh just as just as quickly as they can and uh R- hopefully Rev's getting
0: paid no Rev's getting paid. i'm just saying they've given him some tickets i'm just saying they're getting i mean I, I don't know about it but they're giving him some <laughs> tickets or something to I'm make him just the reason saying. they're not having a hauler parade is the haulers aren't even here on friday they probably don't get here to late Friday afternoon or Saturday morning, back in the day of Thursday qualifying. Obviously they were already here and um, you know, ready to roll. Now they get in and get out as quickly as they can. And what they're arguing, Rev, is the the sport of racing got so expensive and the sponsorships were dwindling. I mean they didn't have the, the lucrative sponsorship deals that they formerly did, so they had to figure out a way to make the I don't know, the the sport more affordable. So the cost savings measures—they um, don't come and stay in hotels three or four nights. They don't, uh, you know, kind of mingle about with, with some of the um, some of the fans and the locals. Um, they get in, they get their job done, and they get out. That tends to be now. Denny Hamlin is a is highly critical of that. I mean, Hamlin says it's almost like we sneak in in the middle of the night, sneak out, you know, ten minutes after the race, and he says the Formula One sport has grown exponentially. I mean Formula One is probably the um I mean it'd be the biggest brand in racing globally. NASCAR obviously in our part of the country and, and maybe America in general and you got indie car racing, but globally Formula One is easily, easily the biggest form of motorsports in the world. And they make an affair. They make an ordeal. I mean they get there on Wednesday and you know they they they're there uh the ferrari and mercedes and honda and mclaren and you know some of these um some of these brands very few americans know anything about but they've heard of you know must be a big deal that guy's got a ferrari hat on you know <laughs> he's got a mercedes at they've got a honda engines or something like that but but um denny hamlin's been critical of the model that nascar's implementing today uh and encouraging the sport to kind of learn from formula one make it an ordeal make it almost a um you know a four-day festival like kind of like woodstock uh meets nascar so to speak 843 6610937 someone's on the phone let's go there dale in florence morning dale
2: morning guys i hope you don't mind me digging in the weeds this morning a little bit i went back and read the constitution last night and uh for, for all of you who have never done it it don't take long it takes about 20 minutes 30 minutes if you haven't read the constitution it's it's a one of the best reads there is. It turns out the president doesn't have the authority to appropriate money. Nancy Pelosi was right about that. So, this whole college payback thing he's doing is really unconstitutional. It's very clear. Article 1 is is Congress. Article 2 is the president, and it tells what they can do. And it don't say that he can appropriate funds. Now then, What I see happening, this is my little uh, conspiracy brain going to work, is that, obviously, this is going to get uh, challenged in court, probably all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court's going to say, no, you can't do this. It's unconstitutional. And then the Democrats are going to say, well, look there, everybody. We tried to do it, and that damn Trump Supreme Court wouldn't let us do it. And... I think that's exactly what's going on here. I don't think they really care if they get the money or not. And I'm talking about Democrat leadership. If this ends up going to a point where it gets turned down by the Supreme Court and they get to tell all their voters, look, we tried. We did our best, dog on it. And that, that damn Trump Supreme Court. I don't know. It, you guys may have already talked about this. It seems like a pretty easy, pretty easy dots to connect, but... I see that's where this whole thing's going. You guys have a good day.
0: On January 12, 2021, uh, the Department of Education's Office of General Counsel published a legal opinion that cited Congress's power of the purse under the Constitution and said, here are their quotes, you ready? The Secretary of Education does not have statutory authority to provide blanket or mass cancellation, compromise, discharge, forgiveness of student loan principal balances, and or materially modify the repayment amounts of terms thereof, whether due to the COVID-19 pandemic or for any other reason. That is the Biden administration. Uh, You know, some would argue they're using this absurd legal argument um, to justify forgiving student debt. Um, And a lot of Democrats, I mean, Pelosi recently has said that that authority is vested in the hands of Congress. She's right. But, but you can confuse this issue. I mean, I've, I've read a lot about it in the last week or so. Uh, the HEROES Act, which was passed after nine eleven, 11 The HEROES Act basically claims as a non-lawyer um, that the emergency powers given to the secretary of whatever department it may or may not be um, can be used. And here's the language. You ready? In the, in the statute, HEROES Act can be used to effectuate a program or targeted loan cancellation directed at addressing the financial harms of the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, that's the language. Um, here's the problem. I think Dale's right. I think if this ever gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, it will be struck down. Finding someone who has legal standing, I mean, we talked a little bit about that last week. I intended to kind of go down that road um, again. I believe that the Trump court, so to speak, would um nullify what biden is trying to do i'm just concerned that a lower court will refuse to give any of these arguments standing what we've confused the constitution guys with a heroes act what with covid 19 relief funds i mean we've gotten real real um confusing about our interpretation of the constitution and to me the biggest challenge is who can or cannot legally um have standing status and advance a lawsuit. Um, that there was a law passed after nine eleven that gave the Secretary of Education. I mean, this is not of the Constitution, but who cares anymore? Uh, I mean, I read. I think this might have been the National Review. A law passed after nine eleven that now gives the Secretary of Education unilateral authority. Um, and here's the language: He is not required to determine or show. That any individual borrower is entitled to a specific amount of relief, uh, and he instead may provide relief on a categorical basis as necessary to address the financial harms of the pandemic. A lot of this is pandemic related. It's nine eleven related. Um, the the courts have limited um, taxpayer standing. In many, many of these cases. In other words, the taxpayer says, nine, you know, the Heroes Act violates my, you know, the the legal standing or not. In other words, the Secretary of Education can't do that. Secretary of Homeland Security can't do that. And the and the Supreme Court up until now, I mean this may be different because we've got a, a very different court, but the Supreme Court has has basically forbidden taxpayer standing except on a narrow range. Uh, some of these, um, I don't know, some of these possible situations that we've hypothetically talked about and now we're dealing with. Um, Taxpayers can only challenge legislative moves, not executives. I mean, that's some of the, um, I think the Hoover Institute at Stanford had a lot to say about that. The Heritage Foundation has done a fairly deep dive on this. So if taxpayers can only challenge legislative moves, not executive moves, This move comes from the executive office. Um, Who has standing? I'll tell you who might have standing. Um, Former borrowers might want to sue, alleging that um, they were aggrieved by this action. Um, They would have a hard time demonstrating concrete injury, right? I mean, Rev's got student debt, did get paid back because he makes too much money. I've got student debt, got it paid back because I didn't make enough money. Why does ref have standing? What negative consequence? I mean, it ain't, it ain't right, it ain't negative standing, right? I mean, we, we, you know, it's immoral, it's unethical, it ain't right, damn it. I mean, that's not legal standing. Um, <laughs> Otherwise, some of those election challenges might have made it to the Supreme well, Court. I mean, you, you've got to prove negative effect or <laughs> right. negative impact, right. and you can't prove that by my getting my student debt um, paid off and you not, that, that you've been negatively impacted or affected, you would not have standing. I'm arguing that the courts would not give you standing, especially if this ever got in front of a, uh, a more liberal court. Um, so um, even if the loan cancellation could be conceived as somewhat of an injury uh, to a former borrower, uh, and here we go with law, law, a bunch of lawyer talk, you ready? An injunction from the judiciary would do nothing to remedy that injury. So, so the courts say, yeah, you've got, you see where I'm headed. I mean, it's going to get real, real complicated. Um, Congress may or may not have standing, um, given that the executive branch has basically, I mean, I think we all agree to this. The, the Congress is there to appropriate. The constitution clearly says that, but Congress, um, Congress could argue that the executive branch has usurped its constitutional authority. Um, but Congress did appropriate the funds for student loans, right? I mean, Congress agreed to backstop the student debt. I mean, they're on the hook for the debt. Um, so when— what Plus, do you see a Democrat-controlled Congress well, I mean, suing a Democrat administration? Well, I mean, it, to me, it doesn't matter. I mean, if, if if the if the legislative branch appropriated the funds and gave those funds, the control of those funds over to the executive branch via the Department of Education, um, you've allocated, you've appropriated. I mean, you've done exactly what your role is to do. It's a little bit like the debt ceiling. I mean, when you say I threaten to not raise the debt ceiling, all you're doing is meeting the obligations you've already voted on or, or allowed to be placed on continuing resolutions. I mean, that, that's what con- Congress is not doing its job. If Congress were doing its job, this would be a very, very meaningful debate. But Congress is not doing its job. In other words, Congress voted to legislatively agree That ninety percent of the student debt was going to be appropriated, right? Because we're going to be the backstop. We're going to be the guarantor. You pass that that legislative authority off to the executive branch by putting the Department of Education in control. So why do you all of a sudden have a right to take that control back? I mean, I don't think Congress has standing. I think Congress is to appropriate. Interesting. I mean, I do. I think Congress is to appropriate. But I think Congress has acted in an appropriating fashion by agreeing. to to allow the the executive branch, Department of Education, to be the guarantor of 90% of all student debt. I don't think they've got standing. Some of the loan processors could or could not have legal standing. But who brings the suit? I mean, Dave Baker can't. I mean, he hadn't been injured in this. I mean, I got my debt paid off. He didn't. I mean, in some weird way as a taxpayer, he could say, you know, one millionth of one-tenth of one percent. You know, if your student debt goes on my tab, therefore I have been... um, but, but these, were, these were educational loans, not grants. I mean, that could be the language. But if I were looking, I'm not a lawyer. Don't trust me on any of this. But if I were, um, I would argue that the, if I were a member of Congress, seeking to have standing, I would argue that, no, we didn't, we didn't approve educational grants. We approved, we approved educational loans. The government was there to backstop 90%. And then you get into this debate, well, who pays it when it goes south? You know, if a loan defaults and you're the guarantor, who, who do they come looking for? I mean, it gets real, real. I understand what Dale's saying. And I think if it ends up in the Supreme Court, we win. Conservatives win. I just don't know how you get it there because I can't find anybody that has unquestionable standing to pursue a legal case. Take a break. Back in a minute. Do this real quick and then we'll go to the phone. So, the point I'm trying to make is Congress may or may not want to sue. I doubt a Democrat Congress with a, uh, a Democrat majority Congress would sue a Democrat president. But let's say, a, and I don't know if a single member can or it has to be some sort of um, united front. But if Congress intended to sue, um, the argument would be the executive branch has usurped its constitutional authority, taken the place of the legislature. But Congress did appropriate funds for student loans. They did hand off that administrative uh, the administration of those funds to um, the executive branch, Department of Education. Um, and, and I think that gives I think it makes it real complicated for Congress to say they have legal standing in bringing a case as a federal legislature. Now, I guess the argument could be we approved educational loans, not grants. I mean, these loans were when we voted on allowing the government to guarantee or backstop 90 percent of all student debt. We never imagined that any of that debt would be forgiven. Now, once again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a judge. I don't know the legalese or the legal ins and outs of what that debate would look like. But Congress for Congress to say we had no hand in this, the, you know, the president unilaterally did it. No, you approved legislation that allowed 90 percent of the, the government to to be the guarantor of the student debt. So, in essence, you have kind of, sort of, appropriated and given the executive branch that, um, in my opinion, very unreasonable authority. Let's go to the phone. Charles and Lamar. Morning, Charles. Good morning.
3: You know, uh, whether this is a constitutional or unconstitutional really doesn't matter because the Biden administration's proved they don't give a damn about the Constitution. So, uh, I agree with your previous caller. It's probably going to end up, in court somewhere. This this move has not been as popular as some people think it has. There's about, I think, round numbers for simplicity, there's around uh, 40 million student people who have student loans out of about 220 million adult voters. So you're, you're going after the 40 million, and you've got another 180 million out there that are not happy with it. Uh, I know you like J.D. Vance, Ken. Uh, Tim Ryan is running from this like the plague. He's avoiding talking about it. He, he, uh, Michael Bennett in Colorado, there are a lot of Democrats in the Senate and in the House that are running for reelection that are running from this student loan forgiveness idea because they think it is such a bad idea. But let's face it, we, we let the Democrats get in control and then they do whatever the hell they want to do. There's no uh, checks and balances from the rest of the Senate or the rest of the House. And then you get in a situation like January 2017 to January 2019, when Republicans control the House and the Senate and the White House. They got a little tax deal done, and they confirmed Judge uh, Justice Gorsuch. But otherwise, they sat on their hands for two years and did absolutely nothing because they were afraid of what the Democrats might say or do. And then the Democrats get in and they sit on their hands and do nothing and watch the Democrats do what they're going to do. It's it's getting out of control and out of hand. But I do believe eventually this thing will get before the courts. Southern 500, when I was a child, I agree it was a a week-long deal. My brother and I, we lived a little over a mile from the racetrack. We'd ride our bicycles after school on Thursdays and watch them do what they called at that time, the time trials. And uh, we'd watch practice and we'd go to the races. And uh, it was a big event. I went to 44 straight, seven 500s, 44 in a row. And the last one I went to was in 2008. And and NASCAR just ain't the same as it used to be. It's, it's a little different thing. But they do still have the Southern 500 golf tournament. It was this past weekend at
0: the Darlington Country Club.
3: Out um, walking my dog. Enjoy listening to your show. Hope you all have a great day.
0: Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. Appreciate you calling. And, um, uh, yeah, time trials. I, I, you know, <laughs> first round was on Thursday. Second round was on Friday had what we call the, uh, the baby grand race on Saturday and then the Winston Cup race. <gasps> oh, cigarette advertising. The, the, the Winston Cup race was on, um, was on Sunday. Look, I'm not arguing. I mean, don't listen to me at all when I start discussing legal matters. I mean, trust me, I don't know much. I obviously don't know anything about who has standing, who is not standing, other than what I've read from the National Review, from the American Conservative, from the Wall Street Journal, from the, from the New York Times. And, um, and it's not real clear about who has standing, if anyone. I mean, it's a real complicated matter. I mean, you know, I'm like Charles. I mean, I think it's a bad strategy when you come to, Charles said 220 million voting-age Americans. Um, I mean, I've read 220 million voting-age Americans who have no student debt. So it's either 220, it's either 180 to 40 or 220 to 40, depending on what set of data you look at and, and, and kind of trust and and find believable. But but let's round off. Let's say if Charles says 180, I say 220. Let's say there's 200 million voting age Americans who don't don't have any student debt, 40 million that do. That's a tough hand to play. Uh, and, and you do see Democrats running away from uh, the decision the Biden administration made. It, it's not just that, but it gets a lot more entailed when you look at the Federal Student Loan Repayment Program, you don't have to read this because I do. I mean, I told Rev uh, yesterday, I spent a good bit of time reading um, some of the legis- so some of the language in the executive action, and they're basically modifying the Federal Student Loan Repayment Program. There's something in there called Income Driven Repayment, IDR. I mean, it's referred to during the legislation as IDR, uh, Income Driven Repayment. They're changing that from 150% of poverty level to 250% of poverty level. Uh, The payment couldn't exceed uh, 5% of, excuse me, the payment couldn't exceed 10% of discretionary income. That's now 5%, and they've changed the loan forgiveness from 20 years to 10 years. So it is a very, um, I mean, we're going to have a lot more student debt forgiven. I mean, the point I'm trying to make when you look at the federal student loan repayment program and the minutia within called the IDR, the income driven repayment, they have made it more, um, much more likely that student debt will be forgiven uh, as we move on. Once again, nobody's forgiven debt. But let's stop with that word. We're transferring debt. And if you don't believe that, the Biden administration is trying to explain how they're paying for it. I mean, if we're forgiving debt, if some lucky leprechaun showed up farting nuggets of gold, <laughs> we wouldn't worry about how we're paying it back, right? I mean, you just forgive the debt and be done with it. So we're not forgiving the debt. We're transferring the debt from one column to another. I mean, there'll be a line item in a budget somewhere in the federal government that says we moved uh, this category of debt by this amount to this other category of debt by, by, you know, that same amount. So, you know, when you say, you know, we're forgiving student debt, uh, you know, we're liberal. No, you're not doing that, I mean, that's impossible to do. And the Biden administration struggling right now. The black lesbians really having a hard time explaining exactly how they're going to pay for the, the, the non-forgiving of debt, but rather the transference of debt from one category in our federal government's budget to another um, line item. Let's go to the phone. JT in Florence. Hello, oh, JT. Hey, good
4: morning, guys. I'm going to try to go fast, but I got a lot since you guys have been talking. You're going to be more to think of. So uh, first of all, let me just say I I keep hearing from a lot of people that Republicans and the Republican Congress never did anything while they were in there. And, Ken, I don't know. Do you really think that argument holds water? They overhauled the entire tax code, which was the basis of of the boom that you saw, like the boom – People didn't improve the economy just because Donald Trump got elected. Would you agree that that the idea of lowering corporate tax to twelve percent had a little bit to do? Yeah, but I
0: think they they did. Yeah, but I think that's a meaningful piece of legislation.
4: That's not the the only thing. Criminal justice reform. There's there's literally half a dozen major pieces of legislation they passed. They overhauled the VA. I mean, I just listen. You you know me. You know I'm not a huge fan of most people in Washington. Is that fair? Is that's that, fair. But but let's let's at least not – let let's just be fair. That's what I'm trying to say. Let's just be fair because uh, otherwise, if you're saying they sat on their hands, you're basically saying Donald Trump sat on his hands. And I don't think anybody that's calling into your show that's had that argument wants to say that because all he can do is sign things into law or do executive actions. And if we like executive actions when he does them, you can't really – say too much about them on the other side. So that's not even why I called. Let's set that to the side for a second. I do have a question for a lawyer the next time they call in. Why is it when there's an EPA block on legislation, they can preempt something having been done to harm you? Does that make sense? You see what I'm trying to say there? Mm -hmm. It seems that in certain cases, certain people can step in and say that's blocked because it could cause harm. But over and over again, when I hear these things come up, it's like, well, no one can sue until they're actually harmed from that. You have to show standing. What is the difference? Why does that happen? Legitimately, I'd love to know. But here's the main reason I call. okay? (laughs) I'm going to run down a quick list of things. If you are an illegal immigrant and you can walk through a gap in the wall somewhere, you get free health care, free schooling, you get a check. You get free housing is that true that's true okay let me go to another scenario let's go to 2008 all the banks got bailed out right did they make bad business
0: decisions that's unfair to say all the banks a lot of the bigger banks wall street Uh, centric got bailed out
4: a lot of banks got bailed out even though they made bad business decisions is that fair that's fair okay and when that happened the debt got moved from their books to our books. Is that fair? That's fair. When PPP loans came out, anybody who could file an application got hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, and much of that got blanket forgiven. Is that correct? At least a fair percentage. You don't even have to pay that back. Is that fair? That is fair. So let me ask you this question. If you've just got a 30-year-old person who's worked hard, why should they be upset? that they finally get $10,000. And you know me, you know I'm a little bit provocative, so I'm not even saying I'm on this side, but I do wonder, because I've got friends who are like, oh, so Wall Street can get millions and billions, illegal immigrants can get hundreds of thousands, PPP loan business owners can get hundreds of thousands and all get forgiven, but somebody wants to give me $10,000, which I'm gonna have to pay for eventually, because I'm an American taxpayer. I'm gonna have to pay all this stuff anyway, right? What's the big deal? And honestly, when they ask that question, I'm like, that's a fair point. I mean, did we get all up in arms about all those other things? Did, did the Republican government, did the Democratic government sue every time somebody in the government decided to cancel debt or move it from over here to over there or give a handout to somebody? I mean, I'm, I genuinely want to know your opinion because I do. It bothers me. But I also know that there's people who are doing their best. And they want to serve their community, and we want people in this community who are educated and able to do medical care and things like that. But if you come from a poor background, that means you took loans, right? means you took a lot of loans. There's no way to become a medical doctor without it. Anyway, I appreciate you guys. I just want your opinion. Thank
0: you. Hang on. I mean, you, you gave me a lot to chew on there. Let's take a break. I want to come back. This may take the next segment and a following segment, but I'd love to hear what our listeners have to say about some of JT's comments. Very, as he always does, provocative. Back in a minute. Okay. JT gave me more homework than I've had since my yeah. summer and a semester at Walford, yeah. but I'll, I'll do the best I yeah. can. Okay. The, the Wall Street got bailed out wall street got tra- bailed a out. transfer well, I mean, of wealth wall street divested some of it the, the federal government bought interest in some of the wall street firms um wall street ended up paying the government back with a profit of about 16 billion dollars somewhere there about now i'm not defending the the moral hazard part of this I, you know the banks had made reckless and careless decisions subprime lending uh i mean we know the story i mean you know the um what am I trying, the, the synthetic derivatives and all these other creative mechanisms within finance that were very exotic and I'm um, not smart. i mean, just not smart at all. So they were reckless and careless and far too aggressive. But at the end of the day, the investment the American taxpayer made uh, in the tarp program returned about a 15.3 billion dollar investment. Bailing out the auto manufacturer is a different story. Um, the auto bailout, was the biggest single loser in the TARP plan? I think the auto bailout cost about eight or nine billion dollars. So the taxpayer didn't get money back from GM and Chrysler. I don't think Ford took any of the bailout money. If I'm not mistaken, there was kind of a um I an argument they made that they they felt they were better protected by not involving itself. Um, but but GM Chrysler, um, some of the other what about suppliers and vendors in the auto industry Uh, that didn't go as planned. I mean, it ended up losing about nine point, nine point some odd billion dollars. In other words, a little less than 10, but tarp paid back. And once again, I'm not saying nor defending that the government should have bailed out GM and Ford and Chrysler and any of these other auto manufacturers. I'm certainly not defending what the government did with Citibank and JP Morgan. I think Morgan was a little bit excluded from this Uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, Bank of America. Uh, I mean, I think of some of the bigger lending institutions. We know Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, and what happened. There, AIG is another name. But if you look at it, uh, at it from an investment model, the taxpayer got made whole with a return on that investment. Um, how do you, how do you square that with the student debt? I don't know. I mean, I, I think this is exactly the same thing. Wall Street got money it shouldn't have gotten. I mean, I think bankruptcy should have been allowed to play itself out. I think you should have had, you know, capitalism 101, survival of the fittest, so to speak. But that's not what the government chose to do. The government made a deal, and the financial institutions were, uh, I mean, they, they were insolvent. I mean, they probably go under if not for the intervening of the Fed and the federal government. But at the end of the day, the taxpayer made money on TARP. Should they have invested in Wall Street firms? I mean that's the day capitalism changed forever um hold on to that i tell you there's no way we can cover all of this in that single uh student debt is different i mean student debt is a binding contract and this was a little more reactionary legislation take a break back in a minute eight four three six six one oh nine three seven let's go back to jt's call real quick uh let's go to the phone let's go to the phone then we'll kind of because i want to make sure we give um jt's observations Uh, enough time because once again guys we talked yesterday about this if we're not careful the the student loan forgiveness plan will be the target of the PPPs and the PPPs will be the target of the student forgiveness and then TARP comes in and then well they got money and I didn't Well, he got more money than what is the one commonality what is the one common thread in TARP in PPP and in the student debt forgiveness the government, the government, You're in the, middle I mean, the, the, the government's in the middle of all this, guys. And if we concentrate and focus our energy on reforming government instead of being angry with you because you got money and I didn't or you got more money than I did or yours was forgiven and mine was not forgiven, I do believe there's mor- morality here. I do believe there's an ethical basis here. Um, I don't think the government should have bailed out Wall Street. I don't. I don't think the government should have shut the economy down. I don't think the government should have ever gotten in the, in the business of guaranteeing 90% of all student debt. That's the culprit in all this. We, we, you know, I've got a torch and Rev has a pitchfork. As long as I'm mad with a guy with a pitchfork and he's mad with a guy with a torch, guess who we aren't angry with? Guess where We're not focusing our energy and animus toward. And that's the point guys. Um, you know, I could, I mean, I think it's, it's hard to defend the tarp, but, but I think to say, well, I'll give an example. Um, The Treasury says that the taxpayers in America recovered about $442 billion of TARP investments made during the financial uh, meltdown of 2008, 9, 10, 11, and 12. when When they sold their final AIG shares, in other words, the Treasury took a position in AIG, when they liquidated and monetized those final shares of AIG, that basically closed the book on the Troubled Asset Relief Program. So they invested 441.7 billion. They ended up with 426, excuse me, they invested 426.4, ended up with 441.7 for a profit of uh, $15 billion, but that's less than 1% annually. So it was not a wise investment. The government didn't lose any money. They did on the auto industry. They lost about $10 billion uh, bailing out the auto companies but in Wall Street when they when they when they gave money to these financial firms and they took positions within the companies. In other words, we're going to give you this money, but we're trading it for a certain equity stake in that in that company. Uh, when they closed the books, the taxpayer had invested 426.4 billion. Uh, we received 441.4 excuse me 17 so you know a dispersed profit Uh uh-huh um of about 15 billion dollars that's not the story here why did the financial markets melt down i mean the government redlining, and community reinvestment act i mean there's a lot of reasons um you know um regulators being far more friendly to wall street than they should have been the revolving door of wall street in washington so let's go to ppp i mean do you begrudge a business owner who filled out an application and got money to pay his employees after the government shut his business down. COVID didn't shut his business down. The government did. I mean, remember that very few businesses were actually shut down because of COVID. It was government's reaction to COVID that shut the business down. The government voted on um, the PPP plan and in the contract, it basically says this will be a forgivable loan if you use the money to pay your employees. 80% of the money had to go to pay employees. Might've been 90% of the money had to go to pay employees to not come to work. And all of a sudden the student debt bubble is beginning to burst and, and the PPP people are mad at the student, the absurdity of that. And I predicted this, we've got to stop that. We've got to look and focus our energy on who is to blame and it's the government. The government is to blame for TARP. The government is to blame for PPP and the government is to blame for uh, the, the student debt forgiveness, which is not really forgiveness. The transferring of debt from people who borrowed the money to people who didn't borrow the money. Let's go to the phone.
1: Joe in Hartsville. Hello, Joe.
5: Yeah. Did you hear the explanation from Jean Pierre on, on how this is paid for? I did. In, in simple terms, it's, well, we borrowed a thousand a dollars last year. And we're only going to borrow $500 this year, so it's paid for. But I remember 2008, eight, nine, all that garbage went on. And I also remember in 2010 what happened when the Republicans took 61 seats in the House of Representatives. Because along with all of that, they crammed through Obamacare. And then... 2012 came along and Obama. How many times did Obama say he could not do DACA? It it was against the law. He didn't have the authority, but he waited till after he was reelected and then gave protection to DACA and DEPA and all that stuff, which is totally illegal and nobody could have any standing to do anything about it. So, this, this is the same thing. You know, the Congress says you don't have the authority. Biden says, Oh, yes, I do have the authority. I'm going to do it. And he calls us fascists. So I'm looking for, a, you know, the American people to keep their eye on the ball, just like they did in 2010. And we pick up about 50 to 60 seats in the House. So you remember in 16, we took the Senate back over? because of all that stuff, too. So we'll see. See how in tune the American people are, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. Y'all
0: have a good one. Thank you, Joe. I just wish the Republicans had a clear agenda. I mean, I wish there were some radical ideas within the Republican Party. I mean, why is there... I mean, Joe Biden yesterday was the first person that I've heard other than J.D. Vance to say, you know, the colleges are the ones skating. I mean, the colleges are the ones that are responsible for creating this large debt. You know, when you look at... Um I mean with within the legislation, we talked a little bit earlier about the IDR, the income driven repayment. I mean they're changing that model. In other words, it'll be far more um advantageous for you to borrow money not expecting to pay it back. Within the uh, within the federal student loan repayment program, I mean it's always been one hundred and fifty percent of poverty. That mu- that number bumps to two hundred and fifty percent of poverty. Um the payment can't exceed um, it was ten percent of discretionary income. Now it's five percent of discretionary income, and the loan forgiveness parameters go from ten years to five years, excuse me, from twenty years to ten years. Um I mean it's going to be we're going to pay off student debt more and more and more and more. Um college has become a barrier to entry. I mean, when you look at the workplace and, and look at the jobs that a college degree is required of, that shouldn't be the case. I mean, the colleges and the government have cooked the books on employment in a way that all of us, and I keep using the game warden as an example because I just for the life of me don't understand how somebody who grew up on a farm is not more qualified to be a game warden than somebody who has a golf management degree from Clemson. With all due respect to Clemson, I mean, it could be a golf management degree from Wake Forest or Stanford for that matter. But what makes that person more qualified to do that job? So college um, and student debt has become a barrier to entry um there's a, there's kind of an interesting nugget. A business guy asked me yesterday about. I mean, he participated in the PPP program because the government shut his business down. I mean, he would have rather run his business and not go to bed, not get into bed with government, so to speak. But he asked me yesterday. He said, "Hey, you keep up with this stuff better than I do." Is the is the loan forgiveness a taxable uh, a taxable event? It is with the PPP plan. I mean, if you're running a business and the PPP, you get hundred thousand dollars from the government as a result of the government shutting your business down or significantly impacting your business, um, that $100,000 benefit from the government becomes a taxable event. It is um it's taxable income. Um, In this forgiveness of student debt, it's not a taxable event. I, I don't ever remember that happening. I mean, it's the first time in, in American history that I know of that loan forgiveness is not a taxable event. So we're not just going to give them the farm. We're going to give them the farm and, you know, the neighbors, cows and chickens and horses and goats and and mules. Uh, I mean, it's just unbelievable what we're doing here. But guys, the Republican Party has its head stuck in the mud. I get what JT's saying. I mean, I understand, uh, you know, a a tax cut. I understand the reorganization of the VA. I mean, I get some of that. The Republicans need a radical agenda. I mean, why there aren't Republican leaders today in America saying abolish the student loan program. If you elect me and allow me to be a part of the political process, we're going to make sure that you, the American taxpayer, are never, ever on the hook for someone's educational benefit when they don't pay that debt back. I mean, that's between the university. Somebody asked me yesterday, so what would be an interesting first step? Here's here's an interesting compromise. I mean, once again, I would abolish the federal student loan program. I mean, that, that's what I would do. But, but I'm not king of the world. I'm not a monarch. I'm not a dictator. But if I were part of a legislative body, here's what I would do. I'd say, okay, you, you want to keep it in place. I want to abolish it. Let's make the university responsible for half the debt. I am little okay, I mean, I, I, I don't think the, the taxpayer should be responsible for any of the debt. I don't think the taxpayer should guarantee any of the debt. Guys, seven years ago, I told you this was coming some moron from Pamplico saw this coming a million miles away 800 billion turned into 1.1 trillion 1.1 trillion turned into 1.3 trillion 1.5 trillion turned into 1.7 trillion and tuition kept increasing and kept increasing and kept increasing and you knew this was where we were going to end up this was inevitable this was unavoidable there was no way this was not going to happen at some point in time and the masters of the universe have convinced those who participated in the ppp to be angry at those who are getting ten thousand dollars of student debt forgiven and vice versa and we've got to stop that the people getting ten thousand dollars forgiving aren't the antichrist the people who got a million dollars in their business to keep it afloat aren't the antichrist i'll assure you guys the villain in all of this is the government So somebody in the government has to be man or woman enough to say, we're not allowing these colleges and universities to do this anymore. We're not going to allow the cost of higher education to outpace the cost of healthcare And college and the expense associated become a barrier to entry and the bettering of one's life. We're just not going to allow that to happen. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to revamp the student loan program and you, the taxpayer, we, the people, will be on the hook for one half of the burden, but the university is on the hook for the other half. The university all of a sudden has skin to the game. You know what the university will probably do? They'll discontinue some of these programs. They'll not allow average students into some of these universities. That they'll make a calculus they'll allow market forces to dictate who they let in who they don't Now, once again that these these false economies that have been predicated upon or built upon you know the ever increasing number of kids going to college because i'm telling you guys all college is today if you're not in engineering if you're not in business if you're not in law you're not in you're not in medical all college is is an insurance policy It's a safety blanket. Dave Baker loves his kids enough to not take a chance on them falling through the cracks. I love my kids enough to not take a chance on them. I know in my heart it's not worth it. Rev knows in his heart it's not worth it. The majority of you know in your heart it's not worth it. But society has conditioned us, convinced us to believe if we don't do it, our kid falls through the crack. And who wants to be the parent that allows their kid to fall through the crack? 843-661-0937. Eight four three Let's go to the phone. Here's Larry in the PD. Hey, Larry.
6: Good morning. Well, um, I've, I wondered, I have two questions that I haven't gotten, and I, I don't know really where to go get the answer. Maybe I don't have the time to go look. But kind of like with TARP, is there, is there a way to see how much total money since the federal government backstopped the program, that they're, that's been loaned out versus how much has been paid back. I don't think that it's 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 going to be a profit, but I just wonder where that number is uh, in comparison to like a TARP that actually did loan out a set amount of money. You know, I mean, it was a fixed amount. It was a one-time deal. And then, you know, we got money back over time, and we ended up recouping most or more or even what we, what we loaned out. Is there a way to quantify that with student loans? And then my next question, because I – I think I know the answer to this, but I think you you may know by now. When the federal government kind of took over the student loan program, did they write checks to the bank and assume those debts and bring them into the government ledger sheet, or did they just guarantee them, and the banks are still holding the debts, and the payments that we would make to a servicer then goes back to the bank on our behalf? How is that done?
0: See, Larry, I don't know. When when you borrow money for your kid to go to college, does the government send that university a check or does the government send you a check and you, in turn, pay that university? I don't know how that works. I I don't understand the transaction.
6: Well, I'm assuming it goes to the government because there's a big line waiting for what they call change checks where if you qualify for a little more money than the tuition required – you might get a check back you know three hundred or two thousand or twelve hundred bucks that's you know for your quote quote associated costs now I will say it's been a long time since I took out a student loan I didn't do it with my son he, he graduated debt-free we didn't take out any loans for him he had scholarships and he worked his way through college and paid for it so we're, we're not on the hook for so I don't know but uh, I wonder because there would there would be a number we would know how much that money would be if the the taxpayer actually already paid for it. And then we would know how much we got back. We would know how much had been returned. And the reason I ask that is a lot of people use TARP as an example, and I think it's a good example to say, well, we got our money back. Well, with with credit card, I think of a student loan a lot like a credit card. I think the debt is structured a lot the same way. And we all know that credit card companies, you know, you you put $3,000 on the credit card, you make a $50 payment for 150,000 years. And then when you look, your balance is $2,999, which is a little different than the way they did the balance in with, with, TARP. So I wonder, have we gotten our money back yet? Because revolving debt, you know, you know, as good as I do, it's the worst kind and it'll eat you alive and you can you know, pay off way more than you ever borrowed and still owe a lot of the original balance. So I just wonder if that money has come back or not and to what extent, what percentage has come back.
0: And I would imagine the treasury has to, I mean, there's gotta be some sort of accounting Now, once again, yeah. I don't know where it is. I don't know how to find it, but yeah, I mean, there would have to be some clerical effort to account for where the money comes from, where the money goes on the treasury's balance sheet. That's who administers the program and plan or yeah. funds the program and plan.
6: Right. So I'd like to know, I'd like to know out of the 1.7 billion that we loaned out a trillion rather How much of that has come back? You know, how poorly performing are the loans? Then my solution, I think that the federal government knows what college you went to if you borrowed money. They know if you graduated because they know when to make you start paying the loan back. And they know how much money you make because, as you just said, there's an income-driven repayment plan. So if we know what college you went to and we know what degree you got and we know how much money you make, we ought to know which degrees are worth funding fully and which degrees are not. And so I'll even say, if you don't want to put the college on the hook for it, that's fine. But if it costs it costs $40,000 a year to get a degree in petrochemical engineering and it gets the same thing to get in, in you know dance theater, but we know one of them pays about twice as much as the other. So the federal government ought to say, well, we're only going to pay $20,000 of your $40,000 if you decide to major in dance theater because your ability to repay has been shown we've got the statistics we know what dance theater majors who graduate make on average so there could be an income comparison and they the government could just loan less and quickly the colleges would realize oh well then maybe we ought to only charge twenty thousand dollars for a dance theater degree then the student could say well what's the difference and you could say, Oh, well, these pay a whole lot more when you graduate. They'd have to be honest But, students. It would force that conversation to be had. And I think you'd find that the dance theater department would really dry up. Or it would be basically inhabited by people who could afford to shoulder the other half. Correct. And then the question would be, would mom and dad want to spend that twenty grand if they knew you were only going to get a degree in dance theater.
0: Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. Kind of an interesting what is the loss? I mean, we talk about 100, and there's a, there's $1.7 trillion in debt, 40-some-odd percent are in default deferment or some delayed payment program. How much has the government made or lost on that student debt? Got a buddy of mine I'll try to reach out to. He's kind of in this world a lot more than I am. Um, let me see what he can find out, maybe during the show. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. There's a story of CNBC and Bloomberg and Forbes, some I mean, of those three magazines, excuse me, three publications. I mean, they're, they're credible, reputable. Um, The U.S. Department of Education is expected to lose close to $200 billion from federal student loans made over the past 20 years, due in part to pandemic-era relief pausing the bills for borrowers. Uh, Originally, the Education Department estimated the loans would generate around $114 billion in excess income. They will, however, actually cost the federal government 197 billion so there's a 411 billion dollar difference in what they expected to make and what they're going to lose according to the government accountability act that's kind of a federal watchdog so to speak um and i would imagine the general accountability act would have access and knowledge about the um the treasury's registrar and how they line item and how they you know shift money around and move money around their liabilities and expenses and you know um this is there's got to be a clerical process here of which you assign, you know, uh, the write-off or the write-down or, or the forgiveness or, I mean, you know, where does it go from there? Once again, I don't have any idea how the Treasury runs its balance sheet. I mean, if you read the Fed's uh, ballot sheet, it's more confusing. The more you know, the more you don't know. I mean, it's almost like you get to a point where you think you know a little something, and that's when you really get lost. I mean, you'd be better off just taking somebody's word for it than trying to explore and investigate and learn and understand yourself. I've tried to do that, but I am a man with limited abilities. And once I get there, but what Larry's asking is, okay, there's 1.7 outstanding. Give me more. I mean, how much has been paid back? How much has the government lent out overall since so the beginning of yeah. them guaranteeing yeah, was that number the debt? $4 trillion, Yeah, I mean, is and that, they've been uh, gotten two point three back with the interest what? and some of the principal and interest. And, you That's know, I, I don't know that. I don't have any idea of that. The only thing I can find is CNBC, Bloomberg, and Forbes agree that there was an estimate that they were going to make $114 billion. They lost $197 billion. Um, but, but it still doesn't change the reality. I understand what Larry's trying to do here. You know, let's give an accounting for the money. I mean, let's talk, you know, let, let's make sure we're talking about 2 plus 2 equaling 4. But it's still, I think we can all agree that the majority of, I mean, you and I will never completely understand who owes what to where, when, and how. I mean, we won't. I mean, we're not a, a federal, you know, an accountant within the federal government. Um, but I think what we can understand is how that's distorted the marketplace of education when you allow credit to be that easily accessible, the product of which you're financing is going to become more expensive, right? I mean, if we've got tight credit, you're not borrowing as much money and the product or good is not going to become overly expensive. I mean, there's a market correction that will be forced whether you like it or not. I mean, the the free market will demand of that commodity or good to not see but such an increase in price. But when the government guarantees 90% of all student debt, we had to believe that people were going to borrow more money than they should and universities go charge more than, than it's worth. That's my complaint. I understand the two plus two must equal four, and let's make sure we're talking about what the numbers really are, but it doesn't change that the government's involvement in financing higher education led to an astronomical increase in the price of that education. Let's go to the phone. Billy in Florence. Good morning, Billy.
7: Hey, good morning, guys. I think you're on the right track there, Ken. Um, you know, with the higher education, I mean, with the government uh, paying back these loans and and taking over, I think that's a way for them just to get into the to the higher education. We already know they're in the public schools now, or the the government schools, and and we know that's a fiasco now. I mean, let's just abolish that altogether. But I think you're 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 onto something here. Like I said, I think. Um, with, with uh, the, the government paying back the student loans, that's just a way for them to get into the higher education. And then soon they'll be telling us what we need to be teaching our children in the higher education, like to do in the public schools. So,
0: anyway, Thank you, Billy. You appreciate that. Like- well, I mean, if I ran a college, the last thing I would want is the abolishment of the federal student loan program. I mean, I would fight tooth and nail. You know, I mean, I, it doesn't make me corrupt once again, I'm not pointing a finger, say, look at these corrupt college presidents and board of, of trustees. I'm not suggesting that for a second, but it's 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 allowed for an astronomical increase in the price of something that shouldn't be that expensive. It has distorted the marketplace of education. And I think that's where the debate needs to be. Why is college so expensive? The majority of us believe, well, let me stop. I can't speak for the majority. I believe the reason college has become so much more expensive is the government has agreed to be the guarantor of the student debt. Uh, Once again, the clerical matters, the accounting matters, the Treasury's balance sheet matters. But at the end of the day, why is it $25,000 a year at Clemson or Carolina? Why is it outpaced the cost of health care? Because the government agreed to be the funder or the backstop of all the debt. That's what we need to pay attention to. So if we want to make, is, is our objective to not forgive more student debt or to make college more affordable? Because to make college more affordable, abolishing the student loan program is, is going to force a certain percentage of colleges to close. Why? Because they're just not real good at educating young people. The, the, the curriculum at certain universities will shrink. Why? Because some of those degrees just aren't worth much. I mean, isn't that the world we want to live in? I mean, you live in that world. I live in that world. Why should higher education live in that world? Let's go to the phone.
1: Here is David in the PD. Hi, David. Hey, Ken. Uh,
8: Doing good today, man. Uh, You were talking about Dodgers earlier. The Dodgers are 44 and 10 since June 28th. Just letting you know that. And I I believe they've taken, uh, I call it the China model, uh, if we can't beat you, we'll buy you. And think about 2018. Who beat him? Mookie Betts. They got him there. Who beat him last year? Freddie Freeman. They got him. So if I can't beat you, I'll buy you. Um, and where is Joe Biden at today? I think he's in Pennsylvania. He's in Pennsylvania. Uh, that's, it's the battle for democracy, as I guess we call it. Guys, I was watching this last week, man, and I think everything that you see now is geared towards Georgia and Pennsylvania. I was watching a baseball game, and Matt Olsen, this dude, not only hit a home run, he hit a grand slam, and he hit a grand slam in the river. Did you guys
0: see that? I didn't see it. I heard about it.
8: Okay. Well, well, my whole point is that, uh, and it's in PNC Park, which was back in the day, Three River Stadium. But uh, you always talk about the spoken word. I mean, there's, for everybody that thinks that was an astonishing achievement, there's somebody out there saying that that baseball possibly disrupted the ecosystem of aquatic mammals and various marine species in the Allegheny River hydrosphere. And, see, that's what our whole – I, I call it Mayor Pete Jensaki speak. That's what they're educating these people to do is just to learn these big words. But they don't want to do anything. So I mean, this just breaks down to me that eighteen to twenty nine demographic um, that votes Democrats, and 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 we think about the people that go to college. Think about how many schools that are in Pittsburgh. Think about all—I mean, uh, University of Pittsburgh, Duquesne. Uh, there's Carnegie Mellon. In fact, a buddy of mine he bragged about how in Pittsburgh they have what they call the Cathedral of Learning. You'll enjoy that. Even in Georgia, I mean, they got Georgia State. We played Georgia State, right, this weekend. Georgia Tech, Georgia 7, Georgia. This is all just trying to get that. Let's get that 18 to 29 voter, the young people that's, that's in this debt, because, again, they don't know better when they get there. But let's get them to
0: vote for us in November. you have a good day. Thank you, David. The problem I have with the Republicans, what is the Republican alternative? I mean, what have the Republicans had to say? I mean, they're, you know, uh, they're deeply concerned by the Biden administration taking privileges that belong to Congress. I mean, that's kind of the nature of what I've heard. heard. Sure. I mean, that bores me to death. Let me tell you something about the Gamecocks and the Republican establishment. You ready? And with with all due respect, and I mean this with as much respect as I can, um, the University of South Carolina is, is, uh, there are a lot of old timers and old hands there. Um, The Republican establishment are similar to that. There are certain people who work at the paper mill so long, they don't know it stinks. And I think the Republican establishment is an embodiment of that. They worked at the paper mill so long, they don't know how bad it stinks. It's just the nature of the way they do business. So why does the Republican Party not see this as an opportunity to pounce? I mean, why why is J.D. Vance? I mean, he's not an elected official yet. He's a nominee of the political party in Ohio. But why is J.D. Vance flying the flag higher than anybody about abolishing the student loan program and bringing college uh, administrators and presidents in to explain why higher education is so expensive? Why is Mitch McConnell not talking and about do this? Do Republicans really want to fix the issue, what that, the that that's underlying what, That's issue? what you really think about. You really concern yourself right. with. Is there any party up there um, adhering to the fundamentals of the free market and, and capitalism for that matter? But but we've heard nothing there's only one group that has been um, more quiet than the Republicans. And that's been higher education. I've not heard a whisper out of anybody associated with higher education because they know this is the gravy train. This is the enabler. This allows higher education to do all these wonderful things outside of the core functions of higher education. Um, when you can charge a kid, three times or four times or, or a multiple of seven times as much as you did 20 years ago to come to your prestigious or not so prestigious university, then that there's a lot more cash flow there. A lot more um, funds available to do things that may or may not be in line with the university's core mission of educating young people. But once again, abolishing the federal student loan program is the game changer. It wouldn't do it overnight, but it would completely... Uh, obliterate the current model and force colleges and universities to adapt. And right now you can charge whatever you want to charge because kids are going to the government borrowing the money or going to wherever it is they go to borrow money. See, that's the part I don't know. Where do you go to borrow the money? FAFSA. I mean, my daughter asked me one day, are we going to do any FAFSA forms? Try not to, but but I, what, what does FAFSA mean? Who administers FAFSA? Who funds FAFSA? I bet one of the F stand for federal. Well, I'm sure of that. But I mean, Rev. Here's what I'm asking. So, so when when a million kids request, you know, student aid or, or government, uh, what am I trying to say? Student loans uh, for a billion dollars. Just, just, stick with me for a second. Just take those two numbers. A million kids request student loans in the number of a billion dollars. Where does that money come from? Come the university gets paid. So so when a, when a million kids, let's say a 1,000 at Carolina, a 1,000 at Clemson, 1,000 at Stanford, 1,000 at Harvard, 1,000 at Texas A&M, 1,000 at uh, LSU, 1,000 at, um, at, at Georgia Tech, when, when those kids fill out those forms and they request that money, where does that money come from? I assumed it came from the Treasury. But I, I don't have any idea. And I don't know. I, I don't have any idea where that money comes from. Does the government send a check to the university and they're paid in full and now you've got a tab with the government? Or is there some problem? I know there's processors that intervene in this. Um, does the government send a money to the processor? The processor send a money to the college, and then the the processor send a bill to the student. I, I, it's bizarre to me how we've gotten here. But the government, once again, you, the American taxpayer, are the cosigner for ninety percent of one point seven trillion dollars in student debt. That's where we are. And we can't stay there because the $1.7 turns it, it's about $80 billion annually in accrued student debt. I mean, that's kind of what it's going up by annually and, and every year. How much money have we, how much money has the federal government put out? I mean, if the debt's $1.7 trillion, how much altogether has hit the street, so to speak, and how much has been collected? That would be a very interesting, but once again, it's the government. When it's nobody's money, it's everybody's money. And when it's everybody's money, it's nobody's money. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. Hey,
9: uh, great show as always. I, I can't believe how much you cover. But uh, I think uh, it, this, this thing just makes me mad because I took uh, hazard pay jobs that weren't 40-hour-a-week uh, jobs or 9-to-5 jobs to pay off my loan. And uh, it wasn't that many uh, years ago that uh they were uh, actually uh and some aggressive uh people were uh garnishing social security checks to pay that uh lo- pay back that loan that uh, you couldn't declare on a bankruptcy form and uh that that and we're going from that to not paying it back at all hey, that that's just uh, that's just not uh, right and it doesn't make sense but i basically think this entire thing is a huge flashbang grenade, and it's just to distract us from the job at hand, which is securing the Congress so that we can at least put the brakes on some of this craziness that's coming down the pike on us.
0: Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. But why aren't the Republicans railing against the model? I mean, that's the point I'm trying to make. Why aren't the Republicans today saying, well, you know how we got in this situation. We got in this situation by allowing the American taxpayer to subsidize the payment and repayment of people to go to college, whether they went to college or not. Sixty percent of Americans don't go to college, didn't go to college, won't go to college. So 60 percent of Americans are co-signing for the other 40 percent to go to college who believes there's any moral, uh, I mean, the, the morality in that? I mean, I'm not, I don't want us angry at one another. I mean, you need to remember who did this. We, the people, don't have the authority to implement nor administer a, a federally subsidized student government program. Elected officials did that. Department heads, I don't know, the Department of Education, a president, a White House staff, members of Congress, a subcommittee, a committee. um, I the Obama administration was very proactive in instituting an aggressive format that allowed we, the people, to be more and more and more on the hook. But, but what I don't want us to do, and this is what I'm concerned about, the people, that are, um, the people that got the PPP loans are having something to say about those having their student debt forgiven. So in return, the people who are having student debt forgiven have something to say about the PPP. So we're mad the person with the torch is mad with the person with the pitchfork. The people that have failed you are in Washington. That person getting that student debt forgiven is not culprit number one. Yeah, there's some culpability there. I mean, they're responsible for entering into an obscene financial agreement. I get that. Um, But they're not the boogeyman. The boogeyman is in Washington. And as long as we're pitted one against another, we're not angry at who we should honestly be angry with. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 is our number. I intended by now to be heading toward kind of a conversation about radical Republicans. What can the Republicans do radically to really get the attention? I mean, Ron DeSantis seems to me to be on the best track moving forward, talking about some of the cultural issues, you know, genital mutilation. And it's hard to explain, okay, the, the bookkeeping as it relates to student debt is what? and TARP and T- um, PPP, that's hard. I mean, that, you know, most people watching Seinfeld don't have the appetite to try and understand that. But if you start down the road to some of these cultural issues about an eight-year-old entering to a medical contract to allow genital mutilation, a lot of independent voters go, whoa, that's messed up. Mm-hmm. Um, see, that's the one thing that we have a hard time understanding. The majority of people who listen to this show are already 90% more interested in American politics than the masses. I mean, there's a reason. I mean, we perform real well in the mornings. I mean, we do exceedingly well, thanks to you guys for tuning in every morning, but it's still not the majority. There are a whole lot more people not listening to talk radio this morning than are. And and we at times we refuse. I mean, I'm guilty of this. I just refuse to accept that. I can't believe that everybody's not consumed by this debate about PPP and student debt forgiveness and higher education. I mean, it disgusts me that you're able to eat a hamburger today at noon and not between bites talk about this uh, <laughs> dilemma we have on our hands. But the majority of people are probably talking about, you know, carrying their dog to the vet. You know, what time are you leaving to go to the game? Does Seinfeld come on tonight or tomorrow night? Um, but is, isn't did, this what we have you for? To study these issues but, but and sure, tell us But about it? it's not just me. I mean, we've got an audience out there that that debate these things and and sometimes agree and sometimes disagree with what the host says, but it's just hard for me to, I mean, it's not hard for me to believe, I certainly believe it, but it's hard for me to, to accept that so few people are genuinely interested in these issues that fundamentally affect. The country we live in, and to some degree, the way we live our lives. Let's go to the phone, Doctor Will Bolt, and we got an announcement here with Doctor Bolt here uh, in just oh. a second. But let's go to the phone first. Jim in Florence. Hello, Jim.
10: Hey, good morning, guys. So, so Ken, your your show is still important for those who don't listen uh, because together we kind of develop these ideas and arguments that are then taken out and during the rest of the day discussed with family and friends. So, I mean, look at look at what you did with the. Uh, the, the school district vote over there in reference to the taxes, hey, certainly some people voted your way. That
0: but, Jim, think about they- this. Let me interrupt now because you're, you're one of the most thoughtful callers we have. Think about this. If I can't do that, I don't need a show. I mean, the, the majority of my listeners or you know, our family here, so to speak, are, are, are kind of geared toward opposing tax increases. Uh, you know, opposing it done in the middle of the night, especially. So I, I told Dave Baker one day we're talking about how effective we were, and I said, "Yeah, but I mean that, that's kind of an easy lift." I, I'll agree with what you're saying. We, we did have a hand in raising awareness and creating a conversation, but but that was kind of an easy target. We should have been able to hit that.
10: Fair enough, but th- don't sell yourself short either. So I, um, but w- keeping with that, Ken. Can- do you think a young man from Pamplico should be able to go to florence darlington Technical College and become a welder with all kinds of sh- welding certificates out the wazoo on the backs of the taxpayer? <sighs>
0: <sighs> <laughs> My kid or your kid? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I, I, I struggle with that, Jim. I really do. I, I struggle I, because, what? well, I mean, let, let me explain. The, 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 the sentence you just said I'd be supportive of but the government seems to never know when to check itself. It never seems to know when to stop. I mean, you know, more of a good thing, more of a bad thing, more of this thing, more, more of that thing. I mean, to some degree, I believe that somebody with no financial resources, but has dedicated themselves to try and make their lives better, deserve a shot at becoming educated, further educated, an engineer, doctor, a lawyer, um, a welder, you know, for that matter, a plumber, a pipe fitter. Um, I'm just not sure that I can talk myself into believing that's the responsibility of the taxpayer.
10: Well, so right now, Ken, I, I think it's still this way. I think you can go to tech and no questions asked get, um, like up to $5,000 in, um, whether it be your CDO, whether it be a heavy equipment operator, whether it be a welder, um, there's no check on your income and all that kind of thing. So you can get these things in the state, The state of South Carolina will pay for it, Um, but I think if we look at that argument, we take that argument out when we talk to folks and we say, "Hey, look, I'm. It's not that I'm against free college. I'm just I I think there ought to be a check and a balance on it." Um, When we look at uh, how we develop these arguments with our family and friends, I I think it's important that we don't appear to be this austere, um, you know, boot. Uh, that's looking to squash everything around us. The idea that college um, was this uh, thing that was always a job readiness program, that, that's a new idea, to be honest with you, Ken, and it's a post-World War II idea. Um, before that, college was three things. It developed military officers, it developed preachers, and it dev- it was a playground for the rich to send their their teenage children to. Um, and then you had the middle class get involved after World War II because of their um, access to, to capital and, and the ability to make money in this country. And then everybody else saw a way to siphon money from the middle class with a student loan program. Um, but it's important that we develop these ideas together, and that way we can go out and kind of give these, um, these streamlined arguments back and then bring more people into the fold. But thank you Tim
0: thank you Jim well said very well put very well stated um but the Republican party's not doing much of that I mean it's really not the Republican establishment it's the people who worked at the paper mill so long they don't know how bad it sticks I mean, and I'm being serious I mean with, with all due respect what we've got to we, we've got to get people like Jim around the table I mean I think you know I mean I don't want to say I need to be around the table I mean I'm a little bit on the backside of of I will know. I mean, if, considering Biden's nearly 80 years old, I'm probably not <laughs> on the back side of is. I'm just getting started. You know, I'm just beginning a political career. <laughs> Colonel Sanders didn't start KFC. He's what, 62 or three years old. Okay. Um, no, I mean, I, the frustration I have with the Republicans is they tend to be opposed to certain things, but, but not for grandiose ideas. We don't we don't we don't have a vision for college and higher education. I mean, to me, if you're a conservative Republican, the argument's got to be you got to get government out of this or government can't be as involved in this as they are. Um, but, but other than J.D. Vance, and maybe this is why I became kind of a Trump supporter. It was out of um, default. You know, um, there's this guy over here that doesn't do it the same way everybody says it has to be done. I find that a little bit intriguing. Well, how do you know he's going to do it the right way? I don't know he's going to do it the right way, but I know he's not going to do it the way it's always been done, and right now that's good enough for me. See, the electorate are looking for that. I mean, the Republican electorate. I think even Democrats believe this about Republican voters right now. If you give the Republican voter a chance right now to vote for what could or might be or what is and was, they're going to take the former instead of the latter. I mean, that's just the nature. The Republican primary voter right now, the Republican voter, the the, the Republican leaning independent even, I mean, they want somebody to tell them something that they didn't hear back in the 70s and 80s. You know, let's talk about the, jet, the GDP. I'm tired of talking about debt to GDP. I'm tired of that. I'm sick of that. Let's talk about Roe v. Wade. I'm tired of talking about Roe v. Wade. Tell me something new. Give me something visionary that I can sink my teeth in, that I can believe in. Let, let's sit down and co- create a model where colleges are on the hook for half the debt that um that, that kids are afforded, the opportunity to go to that institution. I mean, if you believe in your product, you got to believe you're better-educating kids or highly-educating kids. They go out to the marketplace, get a job, and are able to pay that debt back. I mean, you made a good loan. You created a good customer, a loyal alumni, but that's not the way the model works right now. We're allowing too many average kids to go to too many average schools, getting too many average degrees, and it's creating a financial conundrum for the entire country. Um, Dr. Will Bolt is here, and I don't want to drag. Dr. Bolt <laughs> is now officially the history chair thank at you. Francis Marion University. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank I got, good to all be all here. I like Elvis when he said that. So, yeah. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> um, well, uh, but but no, I, I don't want to. I don't want to get you in, in harm's way, and I would never in a million years try to do that. But but and I'm not saying the model's broken because sure. I'm not going to be that blunt and candid because uh, you're a guest here. You're you're not um you're not a candidate for elected office. If you were a candidate for elected office, I'd wear you I out on some of those grilled. things. Sure. sure, you would deserve to be grilled. But um, but but something has to be done about the current model. Uh, I'm not asking you what yeah. you think needs to be done. But we've got to address we, we've got to address the concern that a lot of the public have about $1. Sure. $1. 1.7 trillion dollars in student just debt. And
11: no, it's 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 a big issue. And again, though, this was this was telegraphed. It's not like Biden dropped this at two uh, thirty in the morning on a Saturday. There had been enough hints. We knew we knew this was coming. It wasn't a matter of if, but just just when. And a lot of people are ecstatic. They've got a lot of a lot of found money. This is this is Christmas morning. And there are a lot of other Americans who are who are very upset over this. Who I, I played by the rules, I I made some decisions. Maybe I didn't go to this school or this college because I couldn't take out enough debt, I couldn't afford it, or I I worked hard, I picked up extra shifts to pay off my debt. Now somebody else is getting a get out of jail free card. So again, it is, again, it's just sad. it's another issue that's just kind of dividing us uh, in the United States right now. And again, it's not something that's bringing us together. But again, it's. Again this was not a surprise we've had a lot of time to kind of prepare for this and again both sides are trying to maximize it politically it looks like it's both sides think they've got a winning issue that they can they're gonna use come November and so again we'll have
0: to see but Dun bolt isn't this an example of um I'm mad with you because you had student loans forgiven you're mad with me because I got a um a a guarantee assured, yeah. ppp loan when, when the government shut my you see where everybody's it. I mean, yeah, everybody's doing a rec- well, I, mean, I use We're, the analogy i've got a torch you've got a pitchfork right. and as long as the government can keep the guy mad you know the guy with the pitchfork mad at the guy with the torch and vice versa you know they kind of skate scot-free and sure. keep on keeping on um we talk about political revolutions we talk about political yeah. disruptors um to me it seems that the american people are yearning to latch on to something I think so. uh, revolutionary or disruptive, but neither or both parties. Well, I mean, let's be let's be honest, Reb. Um, and jumping here, Doctor Bolt. Sure. It seems to me that the Republican electorate are more root revolutionary right. in nature than the Democrat electorate. But the Democrat office holders are are doing more disruptive <laughs> things. I mean, they're obliterating the political norm. Yeah. What do you mean you're going to forgive debt? You can't do that. Watch. Well, what do you mean you're going to, I mean, um, think of the recent things they, what do you mean you're going to tell California they can't sell cars that run on gasoline? Watch. In other words, the the Republican (laughs) electorate are getting no satisfaction while the Democrats are, you know, kind of operating under, yeah, let's swing for the fence while we've got a chance.
11: No, I think both, it it seems like if you're a Republican right now, I'm just, I'm going to, everything the Democrats say, I'm going to say no. That's that's sort of, and I think you're right. There is sort of, they're yearning for a bold, somebody who's just going to get up there and who's just going to this is what I believe in. This is how we're going to do it. a visionary. And there's this this is probably a moment for somebody who can connect. Again, DeSantis maybe is the closest thing to that right now. But no, I think the people are desperate just kind of waiting for that somebody who's just gonna say, i right, I'm I'm going all in. You may not like these ideas, but this is what I stand for. If you don't like it, don't come out in the primary, just cast me aside. But I'm, I'm going for the fences as well. I'm going down swinging. This is my belief.
0: Is it fair to say that some kids are at school? Um, you're at Francis Marion. I mean, you're not a professor at Carolina or Clemson, but if you were, I'd ask a question about those respective universities. Is it fair to say that there are some kids in college because they didn't know what else to do and probably would rather be somewhere or need to be somewhere other than where they are? Right, well, but this is where we are. Right? Once you're done with high school,
11: we've sort of said, all right, to be successful, you at least got to get a four-year degree in something. And so again, this is what the it's a serve. I got you get a good a good education at Francis Marion. I uh, again, we're going to give you a whole series of life skills that, you, even though there may not, you may wind up going to a different profession, a different career than what you major in at Francis Marion and other schools. Again, we are going to give you these these set skills, just basic civics, just how to manage your finances and whatnot that will prepare you for down the road. And again, this is just, this is where we've come in the color gym right before we came on the air, uh, sort of post-World or through the GI Bill and sort of just opening up the floodgates for ordinary common day. Uh, you know, you know, 50, 60 years ago, my, my grandfather was a steel worker. Uh, the chances of me being able to go to college, get a PhD, uh, it, w- it would have been impossible. So again, certainly I am, I've benefited from these changes in education, certainly by Lyndon Johnson, and the great society that he proposed uh, but again certainly there is there is some problems and you've, you've you've spoken to it before it's it, it's government is in everything and I think you need to peel away it's it's not the it's it's not so much government it's that Congress has punched it and deferred given so much power
0: to the executive branch that's the story here yes but I mean, you, you just yeah. nailed it I mean if Congress did its job the executive authorities would, would be limited by, by Congress doing its sure. job. But when Congress abd- abdicates or, or neglects to do its job, somebody steps in the void. I sure. mean, and, and power hungry people are power hungry people, whether they're Republican or Democrat. If you've got a White House full of political operatives <laughs> and, and a cognitive decline to American president, um, and, and Congress does not do its job, then yeah, somebody will step into that vacuum and, and take advantage of the opportunity. And I, I do. I mean, I, you nailed that. I mean, that. that a big problem in America today is, is Congress not legislating, not having the guts to take stands on, on particularly they, they controversial punked. issues. We're going to we're,
11: we're going to create this program and now we're going to shift it over to the executive branch. Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, when they wanted something, they had to go on their hands and knees and crawl, twist arms, make deals with Congress. And now again, hey, you're you're the president of the United States. You've got all of these powers, executive order. This is how we're going to do it. And so I right, will tie it up in the courts for how many years? And that's certainly not what the founding fathers
0: wanted. But when you run for reelection, you don't have a record. I mean, you can say, I didn't vote that way or I didn't right, vote yeah. this way. I mean, I, th- we need more people, we need more members of, of delegations all over the country. And I'm talking about Columbia. I saw this a lot in the Senate. I mean, the Senate would, well, I mean, if they didn't have to vote, they wouldn't. Sure. We need more elected officials in America voting for things, controversial things, concerning things, alarming things, force people to take a stand, cast that ballot. Uh, Once again, you can say what you choose to say, but when your vote is counted, we find out exactly uh, where it is you do stand. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take our break.
1: Here's Jeff in Florence. Good morning, Jeff. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Jeff. A
12: couple quick points. Uh, First thing, uh, I'd like to get both your takes real quick. Um, How is this student loan forgiveness any different than a voucher program for private school?
0: Uh, Well, I mean, it it is a lot different. I mean, it's a lot different. I mean, the student loan program was a contract. The voucher is not a contract. Nobody signs uh, a, a voucher deal, so to speak. I understand what you're saying. But, but the student loan is a contract. The government has, contract has already agreed to basically provide K
1: through 12 education. Sure. And, and then it's something the general Assembly to decide. Con- I'm we sorry, go. Jeff. I didn't hear you.
12: We have a contract. We we have a social contract. If I live in this community, my tax dollars go to the infrastructure that is the schools. right? Correct. Correct. Isn't that a
0: contract? Well, it's it's not a it's not a binding contract. When you pay your ad valorem taxes, those revenues go to the county council, city council, state government, and then they, you know, they delegate or or they vote on how they choose that money to be appropriated or allocated. Some do a better job than others. I mean, you know, some do things that you wish they wouldn't do. Some do things that that I wish they wouldn't do. But the student loan is unique because the government funded a program or guarantees the funding of a program. You sign a contract agreeing that you owe that money to me that makes this unique.
12: Well, so we can, we can agree that they're really kind of similar.
0: They're very similar.
12: I'll, I'll agree with that, but right. they're not because the you same The choice. To send your, your, one of my kids goes to a private school. The other one goes to public. I'm, I don't expect a voucher back for one kid. Okay so uh I, I will say that there's a uh, intellectual uh, well there there's a debate there, right? you can't You can't be for one of these, and then all of a sudden be against the other. The other thing was,
0: no, I think you can. You I absolutely question. think you can, but I don't think there's a, I think there's intellectual consistency in being for the voucher and against the forgiveness of student debt where someone entered into a binding contract.
13: Oh, so so on
12: on that point, if you don't have kids, you shouldn't have to pay the taxes.
0: That's not a contract. I mean, you voted no, for a.
12: But, but well, wait a minute now, if if a, if a couple decides not to have children, shouldn't why should they have to pay for the school systems?
0: Because they elected a delegation to go to Columb excuse me to go to Washington, Columbia, and represent their interest, and and you know, uh, we're, we're no. talking about what were you talking about hypotheticals here. Um, no, the, the student loan forgiveness,
12: plenty of people that live in our community that don't have children that pay for school.
0: Sure. But they still answer to the government. I mean, the government, whether it's a local government, state government, federal government, those governments pass laws that regulate our behavior. Um, you know what, what percentage of our money they get. Uh, but, but it's not a binding contract. You're, you're able to vote someone in or out mm-hmm. of office. I think there's a, a very unique element to the forgiveness of student debt where someone agreed To borrow money and pay it back, and now the government says, well, you don't owe that money any longer. Everybody else does. I think that is very unique to what we're talking about.
12: So, so, uh, and as far as the elected representation, can you tell me if state tuitions, like the USC, um, does the federal government or the president of the United
0: States set their tuition rate? To some degree, they do when they guarantee the... No. um,
12: No, they don't. That, that university. How can is, is you is argue? No, let, let me stop
0: you there, Jeff, and I'll let you finish. But how can you argue as hypothetically as you did 30 seconds ago, but not allow the hypothetical to be a part of this debate? That's intellectually oh, I, I inconsistent.
12: Just, no, 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 it really isn't. Of course uh, so, it is. So the free market, the free market is dictating, and, and just, just hear me out the free market is dictating what the college tuition rates are. The University of South Carolina, state of South Carolina versus the state of Massachusetts versus the state of Colorado. South Carolina can control what their, their state universities charge, correct? Sure. It's got nothing to do with anybody else, but the free market of South Carolina, the state has determined they
0: can charge that much money. That's absurd. That's absurd. What, why, why is that a 90% of the student debt is guaranteed by the federal government. That is the most distortive force in the history of mankind. That obliterates any amount of free market or, or capitalism or free market um, theory. No, it
12: does not. Sure it does. You can choose not to charge that much for the tuition. The state of South Carolina could choose not to raise their rates on the tuition so you're because telling I'm me the argument the you're making
0: has a blank check jeff hang on hang on i don't want to get too far behind but don't hang up because i want to let you i mean let's continue this debate i want dr bolt to jump in but but don't hang up we got to take a break we normally take yes, one at 20 is 27 after i'm going to continue because i think this is a very interesting and pointed conversation to have take a break back in just a minute 843 want to go back to jeff and give him the floor as we continue this um, i mean it's kind of a hypothetical, but kind of not conversation or debate or back and forth. Go ahead, Jeff.
12: Hey, yeah. So just, just to get back to it, there's been a a runaway escalation of college costs and you know, there has been a lot of factors that led up to that. But I, I believe that if you were to walk into a car dealership and fill out a credit report and your credit was great, are they allowed to charge you more for the car? No. But what the argument is, is because credit's available and kids can get loans that are backed, that the universities have no culpability. I mean, we're saying it's the government's fault that the
4: universities are
0: charged. No, them? I'll tell you this I, I, Jeff, let's, let's establish something we agree on. Do, do you agree or not that college is too expensive? it is okay, uh, okay. Uh, we, we've established that okay here's my here's my order of of um of people to blame i think you blame the 18 year old kid the least amount i mean he's culpable to some degree i mean he he signed an obscene financial agreement but he's 18 or 19 he got out over his skis he had a chance to get away from home um he may or may not have to borrow the or pay the money back so so i blame him the least of all second uh, most in line or second most to blame in my opinion or the the institution of higher education. I think the colleges are more to blame because they don't have any skin in the game. Um, the federal government backstops the debt. So when the federal government backstops the debt, they say, okay, we might be able to take advantage of the government backstopping this debt. Let's let tuition increase 6% and see if we have a decline in enrollment. We don't let's increase it another 6% if we have. So, so, so to me, their second most to blame the organization or entity most to blame is the federal government for allowing the american taxpayer to basically guarantee 1.7 trillion dollars of student debt whether you go to college or not it's it's a it's a deeply flawed model and and i believe it i mean i think if if we force higher education to market correct tuition would be affordable you'd have fewer kids in college probably more in apprenticeship and technical schools um but but the government backstopping all of this student debt has allowed the the market to not dictate outcomes and conditions.
12: So so I I would I, the kid is the least responsible. Uh, agree with that. The the government backstopping the loans, um, whether it was a private university or a mom and dad took out a second mortgage, you know, got the money. The money's always kind of been there. But one of the things you got to look at, and and, and factor this in, and I'd love to get Dr. Bolton's take on this, there was a proliferation of for-profit colleges that happened in the United States. And you talk about technical schools. If you look at the amount of money that ITT, that Phoenix University, that Southern Hampshire University, that take your pick on online colleges, how much money they siphoned siphon sorry, out of the uh, that one point seven trillion, you'd be shocked. It's about and a third. It's about people, a third of it. Yes, and what did those people get for their money? Very little. Very little. Okay, it's it's almost as bad as if they went to Trump University.
2: <laughs> to do, <Ta-doom>.
1: yeah,
12: <laughs> yeah <laughs> give him right. a drum roll. Yeah, okay, that, r- that's, right there. There. that's kind but, of a good. One. But, but the, the 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 point is when you have one third of the dollars going to let's let's be honest scams okay what did that do that allowed the market to raise their prices because there was a demand for students and so you know that deregulation that allowed those universities to come into existence that that's a very big problem that's government run i agree with you. That is the U.S. government's responsibility and fault, that they allowed that to happen. But don't don't kid yourself that state universities and state levels, both Democrat states, Republican states, have all allowed this to push up, too. Don't just turn to blind eye and think that it's not a state problem also.
0: Sure it is, but I totally agree with that. I mean, when I was in Columbia, I didn't go 10 minutes without bumping into a lobbyist from Carolina, Clemson, Coastal. You know, um, Walford, Furman. I mean, they all had lobbyists there tending to their business, making sure they were going to be t- taken care of and and kept whole. Um, Jeff, I don't think. I mean, I, I, on a lot of issues, we're we're light years apart. We're miles apart. On this one, I don't think we are. I, I think I think we agree that college costs too much money. We've got to find a way to make it for, more affordable. You don't believe the government dictating uh, or backstop of the student debt has been as egregious as I do. But we're not on different planets here. Dr. Moat, I'll let you jump no, in. No, we're Jeff,
11: not. Jeff makes some good points about at least the uh, some of these for-profit colleges. They're, they're snake oil salesmen. They're the guys who were going to sell you real estate in Florida in the 1920s, and they took advantage. They hustled some people, unfortunately. And those people probably do deserve to have something, or some sort of a break given to them. But again, I, I, I for, forgive me for for towing the company line here. <laughs> My employer, Francis, I think I think we are the one of the exceptions. Uh, we've frozen tuition for several years, and we've been able to, in fact, expand, increase the number of courses and offerings. Uh, we've got all brand-new medical programs, of course, uh, Freshwater Ecology Center. So, again, for, please don't lump us in with a lot of the other ones that have just been sort of fast and loose. Uh, we have some excellent money managers, guys, who are who really know what they're doing. And I think maybe this makes us the exception, but I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm very lucky and proud to be part of that school. Jeff,
12: last well, one is yours. I, yeah, I hear good things about Francis Marion. I, I've got, listen, I don't think we win by taking away education for the masses. I don't think that's a roadmap to success. You can't sit here and say we need to compete against China and India, who have X amount of school, students in engineering school, and we're falling behind. We're not going to win by taking away college or a path to college. That's not how we're going to win this, the intellectual uh, uh, race in the future. Um, I will say that whether you like to admit it or not, regulation needs to be brought back into bear. Thank
0: Thanks. you, Jeff. Appreciate it. I mean, that's kind of an interesting take. I don't disagree with, I mean, I disagree with Jeff believing that the education is a free market. Higher education is not a free market because once the government said, we've got the, we, we've we got your back on 90% of the debt. You, you had to believe that smart people are going to take advantage of that. Um, I do believe uh, to Dr. Bolt's point to to lump all higher education yeah. as the same is unfair. Right. I mean, th- there are some universities that have done a good job of maintaining uh, affordability, right. of making sure the quality of education um, is commensurate with the amount of money right. you're spending. Uh, the, the the for-profit colleges were the ones that really, really pushed to the extreme, took advantage of families and kids.
11: Give a lot of us a black eye. Well, I mean, I mean they, it did,
0: they, but they, but I still believe that for higher education, I think there has to be a market correction in higher education. So- I think the only way to market correct education, higher education, is to not allow the government to be the guarantor of 90% of the student debt. I mean, you're not going to convince me otherwise. Now, once again, my life is in business. So, so I look at everything through the lens of a business person. That was a terrible, terrible business decision that our government made. We can argue about some of the state uh, funding, so, some of the uh, raising tuition, not raising tuition, what to do with lottery money, what not to do with lottery money. Uh, those are fair debates, nuanced debates, but the fundamental problem with college today is the government backstops 90% of the debt That has led to an escalation of the cost of tuition because the government's got your back. And I think that would be, um, I think it's natural to believe that that force distorted the market more than any other principle could have, um, I don't know, kind of taking the place of or overwhelmed that. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take our, our last break. Nick in Lexington. Hi, Nick.
13: The one thing I was waiting on you to say, Ken, was when you supply a path for money, you create demand. And if you believe in the uh, supply demand curve, if you have more demand, price
0: goes up. Well, macroeconomic stimulus always leads to inflationary pressures. I mean, that's just, it's unavoidable. I mean, I don't care where you get a degree in in, in economy, or I don't, I don't care what economist graduated from where. Macroeconomic stimulus, and when the government backstops 90% of the debt, that is a macroeconomic stimulus that is going to lead to inflation in that sector of the economy. That's right.
13: More people are gonna be willing, able to go to college. Because they can afford it. You know, um, I, do, have you ever heard, it's my understanding in North Carolina, do you know how they spend their lottery on money on higher education? I don't have any, any idea. Have 10 schools that the tuition is only $5,000 a year.
0: Interesting. The lottery subsidizes the cost of the education of the other amount? Yep. That's kind of interesting. Um, I'm trying my best. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. we got to take another break. But but I want to say this. I'm trying my best to get a paper trail of lottery funds in South Carolina. I hope to have it by Friday. Our delegation will be here Friday. Um, it takes it about $600, 650000000 a year. It nets somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 I think about 60% of all the, uh, the money taken in has to go out and pay in winners i mean there are certain requirements the lottery has to have you can't take all the money and and never i mean it'd be like las vegas i mean you can't rig a a, you know slot machine and never pay out the winner i mean you know that'd be crazy there's a certain percentage the gaming commission requires in disbursements um, that's similar to the lottery but we still have about you know 250-ish million dollars a year to spend on education k-12 through and higher ed i want to try to find out you know where that money goes could we do a better job of allocating funds and helping some of these kids not fall through the cracks the only disagreement i got with jeff Je- jeff doesn't believe that the government backstopping the debt is as big a deal as i do i mean i think we agree college costs too much i think you know resituating some of the uh, some of the scales of economy in higher education but um but I-, I just believe that's the game changer you want to get college back in line with, with what you know uh, a value proposition should be stop allowing the t- american taxpayer to be the guarantor of that debt and you'll see a uh, a big correction congratulations my friend oh thank the new you. history Thanks, chair Chairman. at francis marion university uh dr bolt and um well, i kind of took calls more than we did <laughs> yeah. anything else today Good segment. um go game cocks and i guess go vols they're playing thursday night they're playing
11: ball state so yeah uh, should be a winnable game on uh, paper. I,
0: I would imagine that yeah <laughs> um We'll see you the weekend before Clemson. I think it's when the that's Gamecocks right. and Volunteers play this year. We'll have a lot of fun between now and then. Take that's a break. Right. Thanks, man. Back in just a minute. 843 is our number. A couple of callers held on during the break. Let's be respectful of their time and go there now. Matt in Florence, that's you. You're on the air.
14: Hey, guys. Um, yeah, I, I know that this hour is supposed to be like the chilled hour, but the the last thing I'm going to say about this this college stuff that's that's going on right now, like – it's amazing. I get on the on like Facebook, and I read some of the posts, and uh, the people are basically trying to make you feel like a piece of garbage for not being willing to throw down three hundred billion dollars for somebody else's decision. Like, don't get me wrong. You know, like I feel for college students, and if they had a little bit of like humility about the nature in which they talk about this stuff, it might actually be easier to get along with it. But. Everybody just makes you feel like trash for not even more, for you know even questioning the idea of throwing around this money. I mean, there's plenty of blame to go around. I I blame the parents for not telling their kid no, you can't spend that kind of money. I blame the the high school guidance counselor that told uh, this idiot kid that's probably not smart enough to go to college that they should. I blame the the student advisors at colleges for letting somebody uh, sign up for basket weaving degrees and Shakespearean theater, you know, but there's one person that's not to blame. And that's the American taxpayers who had nothing to do with this crap and didn't make this decision. And it's just amazing to me how there's zero humility about it. They just treat you like utter garbage for even suggesting that, Hey, maybe this isn't a fiscally responsible idea to pay for somebody else's loan. Anyway, that's all I got is just a bit.
0: That's a lot. I mean, that, that says a lot, Matt. Appreciate it. My man, a lot of people feel that way. Um. I think it gives us an opportunity to address some of the ills of the way we fund higher education. I mean, I'm hopeful if we were a serious nation, I mean, well, let me say that again. If we are a serious nation, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to give up just yet. If we are a serious nation, if we are indeed the preeminent superpower on the planet today, we will allow this to be a conversation about how do we address, uh, the problems in higher education. Now there's going to be some winners and losers, I've said it earlier, and I'll say it again. The swing for the fence proposal is forgive the $1.7 trillion of student debt, forgive all of it, but abolish the federal student loan guarantee program. I mean, that's where all of this, and and Rev, somebody texted me a second ago and said, hey, man, you tend to look at everything through the lens of a business guy. I mean, the commentary, the opinion, uh, the, the forceful nature of which I sound like I'm sure I'm right about this. Guys, trust me on this. But there's some things that that I'm a little bit confused about. There's some things that I'm not as sure as I was other things. If the government did not backstop 90% of all student debt, college would not be as expensive as it is. College has increased eight times the rate of wages, not 8%, not 80% by a multiple of eight tuition, average price of tuition at public and private institutions in America Institutions of our learning has increased eight times faster than wages in the past 42 years, since 1980. I mean, that's an absurd number. That's an insane number. Now, now, gradually, did that happen in 80? I mean, the government began backstopping loans in 65. but, But it got a little bit more intense and a little bit more consuming and a little bit more involved. And about 15 years ago, the government made a decision to be... Um, the guarantor for ninety percent of all student debt. To believe that that did not so distort the funding and the cost of higher education, I mean it's it's absurd to me. Now that once again, the majority of people don't run a business. The majority of people have not kind of sat in my in my chair and walked in my shoes uh, addressing some of the problems of supply and demand. I've never sat in an economics class in my life, but I I tried to run a business for about thirty two or three years, my father ran a business, started a business from scratch. I mean, I learned from him a balance sheet and, you know, liabilities and expenses and coming in and going out at inflow and outflow and all of these terminologies. My daughter showed me a, um, a class she had not long ago. I told you this Rev, um, her freshman year at the Dalton school of business, she comes home for, I don't know, a long weekend and she shows me on her laptop, some of what they're discussing. And I knew every bit of it. I mean, I knew it from one side or the other, but I told her, I said, I can't explain it to you academically. And as I, I don't have any scholarly perspective of what you're, you're showing me. She's showing me percentage and margins and EBITDA and all these other sorts of things. And I said, I said, honey, I understand it a lot better than you do. But I can't explain it to you in a way a teacher would like it to be explained. Now if you tell your teacher, hey, I want to preface any of my commentary with this is a G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip delivery, I think you can, you know, you can probably pass with flying colors. But but that's, you know, <laughs> Or they might say who's GI Joe? Yeah, but a GI Joe with a Kung Fu grip? What? Um But that's the the perspectives I have, the opinions I hold are not because I learned these in a in a courtyard Marriott. You know, if somebody gives you a ham sandwich, an apple, and a Diet Pepsi and says, hey, we've got this expert on the economies. No, I lived these things. I've learned these things, many the hard way. And if you take risk out of the equation, if the lender has no risk whatsoever that the borrower is going to pay him back, loan all you'd like. It doesn't matter. I mean, imagine, uh, I-, I told Rev a while back, Uh, Imagine somebody opened a muffler shop in Sumter, and they came to our Sumter sales staff. They've got no experience putting on mufflers. We don't know if they know what they're doing or not, and they want to buy $100,000 of radio advertising. There's no way you would run that advertising until you had the money on the front end, unless the government guaranteed and then, you, you know, what do we do? We, we'd try to sit around a table and say, hey, that person will never make it. But who cares? Who cares? We're getting our $100,000. What do you mean we're getting our 100000 If the person doesn't make it, they're not going to be able to pay the radio advertising and we'll be left hanging. Oh, no. No, the government said that they're trying to incentivize people to put on mufflers and open muffler shops. And they're going to guarantee. I mean, I've got a I've got a document right here. Ooh, that's very different. Uh, that's incredibly different. There is no marketplace reality there any longer. I mean the, the muffler shop's gone out of business two years, but we're still playing radio ads. Why? Because we got a hundred thousand dollars worth that was guaranteed by the federal government. People are not angels. You aren't, I'm not, nobody is. We're not angels. Then the animal spirits of the free market are in all of us. And when higher education gets an opportunity to get a little more than their fair share, they're normally going to be inclined. Now, they'll argue they needed to pay administrators. They'll argue they need to pay uh, some of these ancillaries, better, nicer dorms. Next thing you know, it's a better, nicer dorm with a climbing wall, a lazy river a Starbucks. Or you've got some of these uh, venues that aren't associated with the university. They add quality to the community. And I'm not arguing against all of this. But to believe that that's not the great disruptive or distortive force in the market of education, higher education in particular, I just think is not understanding how business works. Education, higher education, in this case, is a business, and the cost of doing business has gone up eight times the the wage increase of the average American. So, if the wage in, if if the cost of a good goes up eight times what your wage does, you've got no choice but to borrow the money. I mean, you don't have the money to pay for a college degree. You know, the great question is, uh, and nobody knows the answer to this, what would the cost of a four-year education at Carolina or Clemson cost if the government didn't backstop 90% of the debt? I mean, that's the hypothetical that I think we should all play out. I don't have any idea. I mean, I would imagine half what it is today. If, if 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 people had to go to lending institutions and and defend borrowing the money, you're going to where? I'm going to Texas A and M to get a degree in petroleum engineering, and I've never made a B in high school. Okay, we'll we'll loan you the money. You're a reasonable candidate. We expect you to pay us back. Um, what did you do? I played football. I was real good in football. Played a little baseball and basketball. Um, graduated 41 out of 82. My average was just above a 2.0, a C, and, and I want to go off to college. do mm, don't know about that. So there's a kid that doesn't go to college. That kid, and here's where I think the lottery money and some of the other uh, benefit. I think we could take that kid because this is cultural. We've got to have not just a financial remodeling. We've got to have a cultural shift. Culturally, we've got to believe that every young person does not have to go to college. The parents of those kids have to believe that if that kid doesn't go to college and accumulate $50,000, $70,000 in student debt, their kid's going to be okay. They're going to get a job somewhere, making a good living, um, having a bright future. But right now, culturally, we've been convinced, the majority of America has been convinced, that um, it's just a given. I mean, we have church that, that recognizes high school seniors. I mean, I've been to many of these Um, it doesn't say I'm going to work or I'm going to the army. I'm going, it's, um, she's going to the university of South Carolina. He's going to Clemson. They're going to Francis Marion. They're going to coastal. It's almost like just the next natural step. And it shouldn't be the next natural step. A percentage of high school graduates should go to college. A percentage should not. And there's gotta be a market correction and a cultural shift in, in addressing the problem. And maybe just maybe, Jeff and I, I mean, Jeff agrees that college is too expensive. I agree that college is too expensive. We don't agree on much. Now, now Jeff would be more sympathetic to the government than I would be, but, but how do we address this? And I think there's got to be a, we've got to demand more market forces in higher education. Let's go to the phone. Ashley, Poston's Corner. Hi, Ashley. Good
7: morning, guys. Um, I agree with you, Ken. Uh, I think that uh, some of the kids that's going to college don't need to get to college. I also feel like like I went to college with Francis Marion. I stayed at home. I worked a 60 hour a week job. I did everything I could do to make it as inexpensive as I could. I took out no student loans. I worked my ass off is what I did for four years to pay for my college. I never took out a student loan, not the first one. I could have gone to Clemson or Carolina Stayed on campus, party hard, had a good life, this, that, and the other. I mean, I don't you think I wanted to go party and have a good time at 19 years old? Yeah, but I didn't. But I think all this boils down to is, is if colleges, 90% of the college graduates, voted Republican, there wouldn't be a solid single dime of money given on this. And I think the American people are tired of letting the government, especially the Democratic Party, because I think they do it more than Republicans do. They're figuring out who the winners and the losers are. They're tired of the government saying you're a winner, you're a loser. They just need to stay out of it altogether on multiple fronts. And that's all I got.
0: Thank you, Ashley, to appreciate that. Well I mean to Ashley's point, what what has happened is uh what had happened was um young people have been led and the families of young people have been led to believe that there is no other financially viable option. The kid must go to college. They must get educated in a four-year or, or, or you know acquire a four-year degree, no matter what the cost is. Um, and that way, you're sure they don't fall through the cracks. That's the cultural shift. Now, now I believe this rev. I don't know when. I don't know where. I don't know how. I don't know what time of the day. I don't know what month of the year. I don't know a year. I don't probably don't even know why. Yeah, I do know what century. But but whether we have the cultural shift or not, there will be an economic reality. I mean, we're dealing with a little bit of it now. You know, but if I can see this train coming, then certainly people brighter than I did as well. But we kicked the proverbial can down the road. I mean, I can remember, I'd love to have shows from seven or eight years ago, but, but I, there was a day that I remember it was about $800 billion. And it just kind of like dawned on me, wow, okay, the student debt... Amount in America today is nearly a trillion dollars, and the government backstops ninety percent of that. I just remember that moment in time. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow. We'll we'll talk about this one day, and then it goes to one point one trillion. <laughs> I mean, we're at about eighty, somewhere in the neighborhood of eighty billion dollars a year in student debt. So what? Every every four years, we're adding three trillion. I mean, am I right there? You know, 163 Yeah, about every four years, we added about three trillion dollars in student debt uh, excuse me th- uh, 30 years 30 every yeah well i mean every three years we're adding about why wow, what am i trying to say here a third of a trillion dollars in student mm-hmm. eighty-one, sixty-two, forty-three, twenty. 43 so we're adding about one third of a trillion dollars every four years mm-hmm. to student debt mm-hmm. i mean kind of kind of think about that guys one third of one trillion dollars every four years in cumulative student debt we're, we're going to be back here again in, in another three years there will be some democrat president I'm um, trying to forgive another, you know, I mean, the number now is a trillion dollars. I don't know if you saw this or not, but the new number uh, per the Board of Economic, not the Board of Economic, I said State, uh state, the uh, CBO. What is that? The Congressional Budget Office. I mean, they're saying now that they believe the number is closer to a trillion dollars. And the White House is not denying that this is not loan forgiveness because they're arguing the way we're paying for it. Is we didn't spend a trillion we didn't have. We're only spending 800 we didn't have. We're applying that 200 billion to the number. I mean, it's lunacy. It's absurd. But it's, you know, we said it last week, and I'll say it again. It's almost like we're playing Monopoly, and none of this money is real, and none of it really matters. And if somebody gets mad at somebody, just wipe all the crap off the table or the board, and we'll start the game over. This is the real world, and there are going to be real consequences at some point in time. For our irresponsible actions and decisions, let's go to the phone.
1: Kevin in Effingham, hello, Kevin, you're on the air.
5: Hey, how y'all doing this morning? Hey, Kevin. Uh, look here, well, I, I might not know what I'm talking about or something, but I was just wondering, as far as bankruptcy, who, who takes care of those debts?
0: Oh, that that would be a private matter. I mean, the government, I, you know, I, I don't know about the, the the government. I don't know if you declare bank if you go south on a government debt? I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea how to discharge chapter 11, chapter 13. Um, that's kind of an interesting point. Don't know. But but I know that if you declare bankruptcy, you're protected from creditors. So the creditor can't seize your assets if you're methodically working through uh, some of the bankruptcy proceedings. But, um, but you can't discharge student debt even if you declare bankruptcy. In other words, you declare bankruptcy okay. and you're negotiating with some of the lenders. You, you can't, I mean, some of the, uh, that was in the Bush administration. Bush 43 yeah. revamped some of the bankruptcy laws and student debt cannot be discharged in bankruptcy.
2: Yeah,
0: anything dealing with the government, basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, yep. you said it. That, that's kind of right. appreciate that. That's kind of an interesting. That's been the theme of the show. Well, I mean, yeah, you morning. can't, I mean, Bush 43 um, revised some of the bankruptcy laws and there, there are certain obligations you can, you know, um, step aside from, in other words, you can, the courts will allow you to negotiate with your creditors, how you pay, do they get pennies on the dollar, nickels on the dollar, dimes on the dollar, quarters on the dollar, judgment, liens, all these other sorts of things. I mean, all of that gets messy in business. It's not very, I mean, it's not common, but it's not terribly uncommon for those sorts of things to happen to the private sector. But there's some debts you can discharge in bankruptcy. Student debt is not one. You can't discharge student debt uh, despite going personally bankrupt. Let's go to the phone. Okay. Our next caller is Tim in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hi,
13: Tim. Hey, how are y'all this morning? Hey, Tim. Uh, good. I don't want to really talk about student debt, but I wanted, I'm i as a lifelong Alabama fan. I got a bone to take with you about what you said yesterday. I didn't get a chance to call. No
0: dominant Southern teams in the 70s? Are you kidding me? No, I said, I said the only I can think of is Bear Bryant in Alabama. I know, but it took you, it took you a minute. <laughs> you like didn't that. say it fast yeah, enough. Yeah, he's mad I didn't say it fast <laughs> enough. There's a true Alabama fan.
13: But uh, I wanted to uh, just share, <laughs> when, in 65 was when I became an Alabama fan. Anyway, they played Nebraska, and you were talking about Nebraska. And their offensive line – outweighed ours on average, 225 to 185. Our defensive line weighed 185, NOL 225, and we beat them by 15 points. But from that moment on, you know, I was a bounce fan. But then when I heard you say, you know, struggle to find a team from a team that won, now I know those mythical championships and all, I don't really, since we got Nick Saban, I don't even count those anymore. But, uh, you know, we won three or four of those in the 70s.
0: I'm trying to find it now. You're right. They were mythical because we didn't compete. There was an AP and a UPI poll, and you would be the unanimous right. national champion if you got the AP and UPI, and at times, somebody would win one poll and not the other, and they'd split a mythical national championship.
13: Right. I used to count them and tell Nick Saban all those uh, new ones, so I'll take those, and y'all can argue about the mythicals all you
0: want. Good deal. Yeah, they won the uh, Alabama won the national championship in 1978-1979. Uh, I mean, they've won a lot. They won at 34-41, 61-65. Uh, Gene Stalding's, I think, in 91 or 92 won the national championship. And then he got kind of the, the era of Nick Saban. But, um, I mean, I you know, I did say Alabama, didn't I? You did. Uh, it just was not quick enough not for a, a true and diehard <laughs> Crimson Tide fan. The, the point I try to make is in my youth, the football teams that I remember, I mean, I'm, you know, born in 1963. So the, the teams that, that I remember being front and center were Nebraska, Oklahoma, Southern California, Ohio State, Michigan. I mean, to some degree Nebraska, but but for whatever reason, I don't remember Nebraska as well as I did. Excuse me, I don't remember Alabama as well as I did. Nebraska, Oklahoma, um, I'm trying to think about getting a little older, Georgia with Herschel Walker during that spell. I mean, Alabama's always been a power. I mean, they won how many nationals? at 15? national championships um and they probably in in, in the biggest dynastic run <laughs> you know that they that they've had dynastic, i mean i don't think that's the word but anyway you know where fantastic. you know what i mean yeah there, there you go dynastic run <laughs> that, that a college football team has ever they dynastic. win the national championship about every other year you know under nick saban it's kind of the perfect storm well, one of the great great storied programs one of the great 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 coaches of all time um, it leads to dynastic times in college football. If you're a Crimson Tide, <laughs> I kind of like dynastic. Yeah, well, I mean that's a dynasty and fantastic yeah, combined. I like uh, optimism. <laughs> we got a rival to optimism yep. here. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I said Alabama. I just didn't say it fast enough. Damn it for the uh, for the rabid Crimson Tide fan. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. <laughs> that's kind of interesting. I mean, college football fans are intense. Especially i mean, i did i week. did mention I went, I went back and looked i mean i've got it here in front of me now uh, in 1970 71 72 73 45 um that there there were mythical national champions didn't have a playoff we didn't crown a national champion you'd be co-national champion you had ap the upi the national football riders association um the the ncf the mgr i don't know what those are uh but once again the ap what was the, you know, whoever won the AP national champion, you refer to them as national champions. But in 1970, Nebraska, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Texas, where were the pre med teams in 71, Nebraska, 72, Southern California, was the um, unanimous. That's the first year I've seen the unanimous. John McKay was the coach, okay, 70, um, 73, Alabama, Michigan, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Oklahoma, 74, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Southern California, 75, Alabama again arizona state wow frank cush ohio state woody hayes oklahoma barry switzer um in 1976 i remember this team well pittsburgh um that would have been tony dorsett's team johnny majors was the coach they were co-national champions with um, southern california and john robinson so in 77 alabama notre dame texas arkansas in 77 guess who was the coach of arkansas in 1977 lou holtz um in 78 alabama oklahoma Nebraska, Southern California in 79, Alabama, Nebraska, Southern California. It's kind of interesting, uh, the names you see here, Bob Delaney and Tom Osborne in Nebraska, Barry Switzer of Oklahoma, John McKay of Southern California, Woody Hayes of Ohio State, uh, Bear Bryant of Alabama, and then, I mean, they're the dominant names. I mean, they're from the beginning of the decade to the end, In 1980, here's an interesting name, um, Bobby Bowden at Florida State. That's kind of when they began really turning the corner, uh, but that would have been Herschel Walker in Georgia winning it. In 81, obviously, Clemson was a national champion. Were they – yeah, they were the unanimous national champion. Well, no, they weren't. Pittsburgh had some off-the-wall group rate it, number one, um, Jackie Sherrill. But, yeah, I mean, those names – I mean, when you grew up a college football fan – and I mean, the seventies would be the, um, the decade that I, I mean, it seems so unbelievable that they're, I mean, I, am a kid and I'm turning that television on at 1230 or 130 or whatever time. And I'm getting a chance to watch Oklahoma, Nebraska, Alabama, Notre Dame, um, Southern California. That was a very impressionable time in my life. And, um, and I do remember Oklahoma playing Nebraska and I mean, that, that was like, wow i mean this can't how lucky can a kid be you know what i mean how fortunate can someone um be i would beg my mom they had some evening games and i would beg my mom to please let me stay up please i mean i'd i'd haggle with her. you can you know i'll cut the grass i'll do whatever uh, needs to be done but bear bright john robinson barry switzer um lou holtz dan Devine at notre dame fred Akers of texas johnny majors woody hayes I mean, th- those names were just – I mean, they, they were football gods as far as I was concerned, and then Bob Delaney and Tom Osborne at um at Nebraska. Uh, that's when football was played in the afternoons. They hardly ever had evening games. They would have one every now and then, but most games were played at one in the afternoon, or the big powers, you know, the perennial powers played their games at one in the afternoon. So to the Alabama faithful, I am sorry. You did deserve to be mentioned uh, alongside – southern cal oklahoma nebraska texas uh ohio state and michigan i probably gave michigan more credit in the 70s than they deserved their name is in here uh bosian beckler's in here twice woody hayes ohio state five times alabama one two three four yeah alabama's four times um sharing or winning a national championship let's go to the phone herman and pamplico hello herman you're on the air
5: good morning Uh, One thing I wanted to say, and Ken, uh, following up or going along with what you're talking about, is something's not done about student loans and doing something about stopping it. In a real world, comparison to that was back when Reagan was in office and they did the big deal. And for some reason, um, 12 million immigrants come to mind that were made U.S. citizens. And it wouldn't happen anymore because they were going to straighten it out. And in fact, they never did. So what we're going through now is a result of that.
0: That's interesting. Thank you, Herman. Yeah, the concern I have, I mean, obviously I'm concerned about forgiving debt or transferring debt. Uh, I mean, that, that's that's weird that we've gotten ourselves in a place in America where we believe that's okay. Someone enters into a legal contract, a binding contract, um, they don't meet the obligation, and the government says, well, I mean, it's not really your fault. So here, here's ten grand of forgiveness. Uh, And you're shifting that blame or bird to someone who didn't borrow the money. I mean, in America, you would expect us to be in an uproar. Now, Charles said earlier, and I'll agree with Charles, um, he used the number $180 My math says there's 220 million voting-age Americans who don't have student debt. There's 40 million that do. So this is not an, an equitable debate. There are far more people in America today that don't have student debt than there are those that do have student debt. But in typical American political fashion, we tend to create policy or, I don't know, Rev, um, massage the policy in a way that favors these vocal minorities. I mean, why are we talking so much about transgenderism, you know, and and gay rights and same-sex marriage? Uh, It's such a small percentage of Americans, but I guess in the name of inclusiveness and diversity and, you know, doing right by all people, we want to make sure everybody's tended to and, and taken care of, uh, which is a pretty absurd proposition, but it seems to be kind of where the government has found its um, its moral center or moral compass. Um, but but the, the bigger problem is, so, so the government in its infinity wisdom is going to transfer somewhere between a half trillion and a trillion dollars worth of student debt incurred by those who borrow the money, went to college, maybe they graduated, maybe they didn't, maybe they went to private school, maybe they went to public, maybe they went to for-profit, maybe they went to not-for-profit. I mean, I would imagine it's kind of a mixed bag there. But we're going to transfer that debt and do nothing about it happening again. I mean, that's, it's deeply concerning to do this. It's alarming not to do that. And the Republicans have just sat there and said, um, you know, well, I mean, we think it's unfair to compare it to the PPP is disingenuous because PPPs were um, structured to be forgiven. I mean, it was a forgivable loan from the beginning. It was part of the, the legislation when the law was passed that we knew the PPP was going to be uh, forgiven at some point in time. That's not the debate here. I mean, the debate here is how deeply flawed the funding of higher education is and the fact that it's gone up eight times the rate of wage increases in America. Uh, we we got to deal with that. And if we were an adult serious country, we would be dealing with that. Um, But nobody's really talking about that. They don't don't want to talk about it because nobody knows what to do because you're going to destroy these false economies that have been created within our normal economy. And I know I use a weird example, but what if next year, instead of 7,000 undergraduate students showed up in Columbia, what if 4,800 showed up? I mean, what if 2,200 fewer students showed up next year in the freshman class at the University of South Carolina? What does that economy look like? How many empty dorm rooms are there? How many Starbucks sales are cut in half? How many um, how classrooms, how many professors? Whoa, how many programs are discontinued? How many administrators are laid off? How many professors have to go find a new line of work? I mean, it's going to be unbelievably disruptive. And right now, I guess the easy thing to do especially if you're 80 and cognitively um, impaired is to say, I'll let somebody else deal with that at some point in time. And that's our great, I mean, the great regret I have about America today is our failure to confront some of these monumental challenges because it takes a little guts, gumption, fortitude and ability. I mean, you got to have a financial understanding of this and you know, it's kind of bizarre to me. And this is probably the most scary part of the entire equation. How few people in Washington have a genuine financial understanding I mean, if I sat down in a Starbucks in in, in Alexandria, Virginia, tomorrow, and said, guys, the biggest problem with the program, it's not who owes the money or who's forgiven the money or where you're transferring the debt. The biggest problem is the government backstopping 90% of all debt. And if I try to explain it as a business person would, it would probably fall on deaf ears. The majority of those people highly educated would would probably say, I don't understand. I mean, please explain a little further. You're, You're arguing that the problem is the federal government backstops the debt, well, that way we know everybody will be made whole. I mean, that would probably be the response you'd get. But, but as someone who spent his entire life in business, good decisions, bad decisions, win some, lose some if you get rained out, um, that's, I mean, that, that your mind automatically goes to that. So, so when the government agreed to guarantee 90% of the debt, uh, subconsciously and over the airwaves, I said, well, I mean, this is inevitable. But I mean, this train is coming. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. Do we bail it out at $1.5 trillion or $2 Because at some point in time, the number will get so out of balance that something has to be done. And that's where we are. And you're right, Rev, there is no debate about how to reform the model. The debate instead is the folks who got the PPP are pissed with the ones who got student debt transferred. The student debt crowd is mad with the PPP crowd for being offended that they might get the same sort of treatment that they did, um, I've got a torch, you've got a pitch for it. As long as I'm mad with you and you're mad with me, we're not mad with who we should be mad with, and that is our federal government. Let's go to the phone.
1: Davis and Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Davis.
15: Good morning. Ken, I went to Darlington when I was 15 years old. I was, it was 1957. And in those days, uh, when you qualified, there were five laps of qualifying, and they had an old, graspy-voiced Virginian announcer named Ray Melton. And he could make every lap and every driver sound like he had just won the race. So it was highly enjoyable. And there's a million Darlington stories, but I got a lot of my education going to Darlington. My greatest uh, revelation, though, was I got out of the car. I really knew it was going to be my last time going because I was my age and I was tired of fighting the traffic and the crowds and everything it took to do it, and I got out of the car, and this guy ahead of me, kind of large, and he had his shirt on, and on the back of it it said, I'd like to help you, but I can't fix stupid. And so I followed him all the way across the parking lot, all the way up that hill, all the way up those stairs, and it happened he sat right in front of me. And the as human nature is, football games or races, every time something happens, you have to jump up. If everybody stayed seated, you can see it, but everybody's got to jump up. And this guy was so big, he'd block out the sun every time something happened. And by the time I got to see it, it was over. So I decided I would take the advice on the back of that shirt, and, and that would be my last race. I'd stay home, and I'd watch the race. And nobody jumped up in front of me. And, on my couch and there was no line at the refrigerator and the TV would show it to me 10 more times at least if I needed to see it. But I enjoyed my times at Darlington and I think uh, everybody around must have a Darlington story, but it's it's kind of great to have grown up around a, a racetrack that uh, gave you so many memories.
0: Well said, appreciate that. It's great kind of story. the, that's well, kind of the Augusta national of, of of NASCAR. You know, when I think of Augusta national tradition, um, history, uh, the legacy of goth. I look at Darlington in the same way. Um, I'm glad they made the improvements. I'm glad they've upgraded the amenities and, uh, the fan experience of going to Darlington. Uh, but they didn't lose that nostalgia. They didn't lose that, uh, that flavor of, you know, old school, um, NASCAR racing. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. You know, when you talk about macroeconomic stimulus, I mean, let's, let's talk about gas or talk about, you know, turkey or ham or bacon or hamburger. I mean, how many have go, gone by groceries recently and seen the dramatic increase? I mean, that's I mean, that's macroeconomic stimulus. I mean, the government printed all this money, uh, dumped all the money into the economy and it skews or distorts what something is really and truly worth. Um, but, but the price has never been what it costs to produce something. That, that, that's the great misnomer. I mean, I've heard economics classes. I've heard really brilliant economists try to argue that the production cost of a good is what it's worth. Uh, you know, in other words, it costs you a dollar to make this. You want a 10% margin. Therefore, the price has to be a dollar ten cent. No, I'm mean, not by any stretch of the imagination, the ebbs and flows of the economy. I'll give you a real quick story. Um, I got a buddy of mine who's a real advanced appraiser in a hot real estate market that didn't, I mean, it, it tanked. I mean, it really, I mean, it was a boom town. I mean, he was into business. He was doing extremely well. Um, everybody was rolling. Uh, people couldn't get out of the way of the money. And, I mean, it was just like everybody was all of a sudden the best business person in the history of mankind. You believe that when you're in the middle of one of these booms. Um, so he's called to give an appraisal uh, for a bank on a piece of property. And he tells the guy it's worth $2.5 million. So the guy says, it can't be. I got $5 million in it. I mean, I built the infrastructure and I've got the water and sewer and I've done all these things and I can show you the receipts. And and my buddy said, Man, I'm not denying the word you said. I'm not calling you a liar, but but the, the, the price is not going to be anywhere near. Well, I mean, that that is the that is the leading indicator of, of what something is worth. It's really the only indicator of what something is worth. I saw yesterday or the day before, where a nineteen fifty two tops Mickey Mantle rookie card sold for like six mi- 12 two, two, million those 2.6 2.6 million dollars okay I think you're right a 19 I mean it was it was a Mickey Mantle rookie card uh it had, it had been graded it was a 9.5 and a grade of one to ten so it was a um it was a very well taken care of baseball card um, there was a day when I was much younger that I kept up with ball cards and I went to a card show in Charlotte at one of these marketplaces and it was the biggest card show I'd ever gone to. Let me correct myself. I thought it was 12 million. 12.6. Okay, 12.6 million. I thought that was it. Anyway, long story short, um, in the uh, probably the late 80s, I'd, I got married in 87. So this would have been at 88 or 9. I'd, I'd accumulated a pretty decent baseball card collection. I mean, nothing like that, but I'd accumulated. And I wanted to go to Charlotte. And I actually went by myself. I tried to talk a Buddy into going, I don't want to go to no damn card show. <laughs> so I went by myself and. Um, and I saw a 1952 Mickey Mantle rookie card. And it was worth, they were arguing over whether it was fifty or $60,000. And, you know, the guy had a book with him. And he said, well, the price guide says it's worth uh, $52,000. And he said, the price guide doesn't own that card. I own that card. And I'll take $60,000 for it. Now, I don't know how pristine that card was in comparison to the one that brought $12.6 million dollars but I mean, it's all about price. The price regulates the value of whatever we're talking about in a free market economy. Always has, always will. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.